Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Sammy Roberts and I'm joined today by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, this is a mailbag themed episode. We are going to answer 31 of our listeners' questions. They very kindly sent in. This is because we had a load of them backed up from previous episodes that we hadn't got to because, you know, either we had Joe Scrabbles in the podcast or it might have seemed a bit incongruous at the end of the uh you know, slagging off some game developers episode. Um, <laughs> that's, that's not what it really was, but you know. Um, so yeah, we had a bunch of those stacked up and then we put out a call for more. So in this episode, very straightforward, we're just going to fire through them. There'll be no like section breaks or anything like that. It'll just be um, raw content and, uh, you know, some interesting subjects mixed in there, would you say? Yeah, definitely. Like there's, you know, there's a bit, I think we'll be able to dive into some hidden gem games. There's some fun magazine crafty questions and some more random questions. I think it'll be a nice, a nice, a nice blend of, of basically everything that we uh, try to cover on this podcast. I did like the one that in the Google Doc for our planning sheet for this episode, you tagged, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> I wonder if I should flag that when we get to it, or merely let the listeners guess. Uh, but first of all, Matthew, before I get to that, how are you doing? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I've um, I've just uh, recovered from watching four hours of the Snyder Cut. <laughs> yep, and that's so... going to date this episode terribly, because um, let's say someone discusses, uh, discovers this episode in a year's time, they listen back, and they're like, oh, remember when we were stuck indoors for an entire year, and right at the end of it, we had to watch Zack Snyder's version of Justice League and it was four hours long um yeah what did you make of it like I, I thought it was more coherent than the original cut um weirdly stuff in the original cut that I had attributed to being like more Whedon-esque was in this cut hmm. so um yeah some of the stuff that I thought was sort of silly some of the silliest stuff that I liked in the original version that it was still in this, I was like, oh, you know, I was sort of surprised that that was sort of Zack Snyder's deal. The kind of, um, the, the Justice League kind of fighting Superman, I always thought that was very sort of like a bit more of a silly, like, Whedon beat, mm. um, but turns out not. Yeah, I think that's because that's the most egregious scene in the original cut where um, you can see his uh, fake lip um, that they've CG'd in over his Mission Impossible moustache. Um, yeah, but yeah, I liked it. I, I felt the same way about some of the Flash scenes, which I thought were probably a Joss Whedon joint. But it turns out that Zack Snyder he does have a sense of humour sometimes, you know. Yeah, yeah, strange, um, strange stuff. Also, I was so before I saw it, I saw on Twitter some people saying like, "Oh, there's a Batman Joker scene in this, which is genuinely up there with like the best ever Batman Joker scenes." Ah. It's like you know, watch watch out Heath Ledger. And <laughs> when I watched it, I was like, come on, like, what are you talking about? That's insane. It's one of the worst, it's like the worst written scene in the film by Miles. And yeah, um, you can, no offence to Zack Snyder, but you can tell that he wrote it and not a professional screenwriter. <laughs> it's, cause it's, it's like the only, like, it's the new scene that they filmed when they knew they were doing the Snyder Cut, I think mm. is the deal, right? Yeah. I just don't get on with that dude's Joker at all, but... I think that scene was very much missold as like a meditative like one to one between Batman and um the Joker and yet there's a load of other like naffly rendered CG superheroes along for the ride and it's um got some of the worst dialogue I've heard in any any superhero film so so bad but um <laughs> good times no falcon the winter soldier yet though for you Matthew no no I'll, I I will get onto that but I'm sure I'm sure that'll be solid three star entertainment mm Okay, so in this episode, I should explain that in the um, 3DS episode, you might have noticed that we teased 
that we're going to do some kind of Capcom themed episode. This is because Monster Hunter Rise is coming out. However, we thought that we needed a, a slightly uh, leaner episode as a kind of break because the 3DS one, as I'm sure listeners noticed, was incredibly long and um, so was the game developer interviews episode. So that's partly why we've parked Capcom. We might revisit it when Resident Evil uh, 8 or Village comes out, but um, yeah. Yeah, nonetheless, it's definitely on the cards. Plus, uh, Matthew might remember to message the person we wanted to guest on that episode this time. Um, he's got two months, <laughs> yeah, the, so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> the truth will out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then, Matthew, let's kick off. Shall we alternate with reading these out so there's a bit of a change in pace? Of the, yeah, um, let's do it. But you yeah. kick off, though. Cool, yeah. All right. Okay, this first one is from Damien on Twitter. This was uh, regarding the eBay Games Court episode, The Trial of Samuel Roberts. Very controversial. Um <laughs> I really enjoyed this. Also made me intrigued as to what my DS games are worth. Turns out Harvest Moon Sunshine Islands is, I don't remember buying it, I'll probably play it and sell it. Do you have any games you'd never part with, regardless of how much they're worth? Um, So Matthew, we kind of like covered in that episode that you're not particularly sentimental about the games you own, but have you got anything that that can be described that way? I mean, there's one thing, but it's a bit of an exception, because uh, when I went over to interview uh, the Dragon Quest guys, we went to the uh, Super Potato, which is like the famous sort of game store in Akihabara. Mm. And um, I bought a Famicom copy of um, Dragon Quest IV and got Yuji Hori to sign it. And that is probably, like, that, and for obvious reasons, is something I would never, ever sell because, you know, that feels like very, you know, of all the things I have, that's like a... A precious thing but i don't know if that counts it's not like a traditional game it's more of the kind of collector's item element of it with the signature oh. um i've got a signed copy of smash brothers as well when uh I, I never met sakurai but i think um when one of the chaps from edge went i think when yeah rich stanton went on a, a press trip to see it he got him to sign a copy of it and uh, sakurai drew a big kirby on the cover for me wow which was nice yeah. So, um, but yeah, do they count? I don't know. They're probably like too precious to sell. Oh well, no. That's a. Those are. I mean, I didn't know you own those objects. So that's. Um, you know, it's a cool thing to hear about for sure. I did think that the copy of Zone of the Enders two that I reviewed that got me my first staff writer job on play. Um, that feels like something I couldn't part with. Although my parents did threaten to sell all my PS two games a few years ago, and I do worry that one day I'll come back and it'll be gone. But then who's going to want to play Zone of the Enders two on PS two like in? 2021 seems pretty unlikely but um i mean if they put it on ebay you'd just probably end up buying it off yourself (laughs) (laughs) as we established in that episode um yeah yeah. so yeah that's probably that's pretty much the only one i sort of um but as i've been collecting games now that all these games i've been hoarding on ebay and stuff i wouldn't sell them now because i um i think i've built up quite a nice little collection but um Hmm. matthew why don't you go ahead with question two yeah, so this also refers to the eBay Games Court. This is from Tom Piercy. He asks, uh, going in the opposite direction, I once sold my copy, copy of Tactics Ogre Knights of Lotus for around £15. Now, now there are completed sales on eBay for 115 Have you ever sold a game only see the price to shoot up after the fact? Hmm. So I don't sell many games. Um, I sold two PS2 games a little while ago um, because I saw, again, they were in my parents' house and I thought, well, I'm not playing them, I might as well sell them. Um, And so one of them was Yakuza 2, which I sold for about 40-something pounds. That hasn't really gone up in value since I've sold it about four years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other one I sold, though, was Persona 3 FES, or FES, like it's basically like the 
the golden or royal edition of Persona 3. I bought mm. that for seventeen ninety nine, I think, on Play.com all those years ago when that was a thing you could do. And yeah. that um, I sold for about 34 quid, which I thought was quite lean, actually, for what it was worth. But now, because Persona is massive business, that sells for upwards of £115. So that was a foolish thing to sell. Wow. I think mm. I've got a boxed copy of that. Wow, there you go. I mean, I, that's the, that was the other thing. I owned the game digitally on my PS3, so I thought, well, why would I need the physical copy? But, um, yeah, how embarrassing. Does it matter if it's unsealed or is that new? It's sold um, as new. No, it was un- it was, it was, um, it is unsealed unsealed copies that are selling for that much on ebay just wow. Persona's massive now it's just so big um god i should dig that out yeah and all people will discover is that it's not as good as persona 5 which is clearly the best one but um nonetheless <laughs> good for them that they can play it how about you matthew uh i don't think i've ever sold a game to mm. be honest i think i've maybe traded a few things in but that's not quite the same thing yeah sorry not a, not a good answer from me <laughs> okay cool well you know on that dour note we'll move on to the next one um <laughs> So, uh, hi guys, how are reader letters slash letter pages viewed from a magazine employee's perspective? As a reader, I'm really proud if I get my words in print. It would be great to know what the perspective is from the other side. Love the pod. What do you think, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, you know, the letters page is a pretty traditional part of magazines. I think people expect it to be there. I mean, growing up, I always liked the letters pages and I was... Uh, I used to write to magazines quite a lot to try and try and get in them, so kind of have that attachment. I mean, by the time I was working on magazines, there was, a, like, just the audiences were that much smaller, that there was, like, naturally less interest. Definitely, as the years went on, they became quite hard to fill with, with um, you know, basically, if you wrote to the magazine, you'd get your letter in, became the deal. But you can have some fun with it. Like I, I liked it when people kind of tuned in, like more so on Endgamer than official Nintendo. Like people were kind of into the weird vibe of the mag and would write in quite weird things or send us things which were quite kind of basically like little notes that were total sort of, sort of non sequitur type things. And that was that was good. In you know that kind of kept the vibe of the mag going. Um, I actually posted this on Twitter a, a little while back, but someone once sent us one of our free gifts back with like a note saying how much it was a terrible git or like I'm sending you this back because you appear to have sent me one of Matthew's old socks instead of a gift of worth or something which was quite fun so like that kind of vibe but yeah by the end it was it was definitely um slim pickings I mean there was there was an infamous month where Endgamer and O&M both printed the same letter as its star letter because basically some guy had been sending his letters to both mags to double his chances (laughs) right um, so that's an indicator of how how bad they were. We never had to like make them up, though. Like that's that's one that that would have been, you know. There were some months where I thought, am I going to have to just make fake a letter here to fill this gap? So yeah, they're a fine thing. Weird thing with letters pages. Like I remember this from like reading forum feedback when the issue would come out. People would complain about the quality of the letters page. As if we, it was the one bit of the mag we had no responsibility for. Right. Like, that was entirely on the readership. People would <laughs> be like, oh, the letters weren't funny this month. And it's like, well, the readership weren't funny this month. You know, get fucked. So. <laughs> Did you print that in the next issue? Just uh, no. in the, like the Ed's intro. Um, by the way, if you're complaining <laughs> about the quality of letters, get fucked. Um, kind disregards. <laughs> but I just, don't, like, I just don't understand how they couldn't see that. Like, that was on them. That's, that's your job. Yeah, but we're responsible for the other hundred and twelve pages. <laughs> yeah, uh, so 
my my perspective on the letters page is I I didn't I can't say I enjoyed putting it together at all. Um, when it came to like sending out prizes and stuff, that was such a pain in the ass. Cause you had to sort it yourself on team. So you oh. know, you'd source games from publishers to like you know obviously the deal is you'd say at the top, hey, if you write in, we'll send you a copy of this game, and the game gets a bit of like promotion, and you know you also can give prizes to your readers. It's a win-win, but. Actually, like having to post out copies of games when you're like, you know, you're meant to be making a hundred and thirty-page magazine. That's kind of the worst. Um, much better when it's um, copies of, uh, you know, Steam copies of of games um, that you can just like send a code and then it's done. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't have fond memories of it. I like um, one highlight though is actually like um, there's a uh, fairly like notable. <laughs> actually, how do I describe him? Kind of a cult figure, sort of like PR in uh, UK games called Ian Dixon, who. Um, sent in a picture of himself dressed as Vincent uh, from Catherine. And we printed it in Play Magazine when I was the editor. And we sort of bonded over that, actually. Um, I think he listens to this podcast. He might be um, pleased to hear me mention it. But, um, yeah, also, Ian, sorry for describing you as fairly notable. That's like a terrible description. <laughs> Obviously, you're a very notable uh, figure. But that was quite fun. Um, when people would send in pictures and stuff, that was good, because then you could just scan it and put it in the magazine, and it felt like a bit more alive. But um, yeah, I think they were always we more fun once... to read than put together. <laughs> we had a guy once who sent in a picture, and he was like, oh, I went on holiday, and I took a picture, and like I think I noticed something kind of weird and Nintendo-y in this image. And it was basically just a photograph of, like, you know, a co- a coastline, and then he'd photoshopped just a massive translucent Miyamoto over the top of it. Right. Um, <laughs> That's it was so weird, but at the same time, that was probably the best thing that was in that issue. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of um, you're getting into sort of like borderline Alan Partridge territory there, I think. But. Um... Yeah, that's that's good. I uh, yeah, if I never had to do another letters page, I'd be a very happy man. That's kind of how I feel. But I think readers did like reading them more than they like sending in letters, which is um, yeah. was always a headache you had to deal with. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. That was from Zach Evans, by the way. I don't think I read out their name, so sorry about that. So it's uh, you, Matthew. Yeah, we've got a bit of a long question here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a question for you both, and it stems from me thinking, as I want to do, about the original Deus Ex, a game I would happily listen to an extended eight-hour-long backpage episode entirely dedicated to, uh, which was probably the most important game of my teenage years. I recall Kieran Gillen's review in PC Gamer, which I think did a great job of communicating how innovative, important, and influential this game was to become. I also recall that the magazine CD came with not just the first level of the game as a demo, but also included the second level, which I thought was a stroke of genius as it showed off how the gameplay mechanics persisted through the entire game and probably got many people much more invested in the plot. So my questions to you and Matthew are, do you have any particular strong memories of your favourite game demos slash gimmicks that you felt really helped sell the game to readers? And also, when is the 8-hour Deus Ex special episode coming? Thanks and all the best, James Highmore. So in this case... I definitely think that PT is probably the most obvious demo, but that's a bit too recent a choice here. I think you're, mm. James is probably pointing towards more sort of historical kind of demos. Like I remember Age of Empires had like a five mission, like a five campaign mission demo that me and a friend like did run into the ground. Like we built, we absolutely covered the map in our own sort of like barracks and town centers and stuff. And then like completely dominated the enemy by creating like as many units as we could and basically trying to break break the game and extend it as much as possible. That one nice. I have fond memories of, because it definitely, like, um, by doing that, I think that the RTS genre is a bit underrated for being, like, 
a kind of a creative sort of type of game. Like when you build your base, there is a creative element to it, like in terms of how mm. you shape your base, where you position it, where you put certain stuff. Like it's there's an order to it, at least, if not an art, that um, goes beyond just like this StarCraft kind of esports thing of like, well, what's the most efficient way to do everything? I'm not really interested in that. I kind of like having um, like 14 Tesla coils uh, just like <laughs> in a wall, um, you know, surrounding my base. Just murdering dogs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> those poor dogs. <laughs> so yeah, in terms of um, demos, that was the one that came to mind. I have loads of good uh, demo memories, though. Like I, um, the Final Fantasy VIII demo had the um, uh, Dollet mission. There was an issue of official PlayStation magazine that just had a Final Fantasy VIII like demo and a Final Fantasy like themed cover. Um, the Ultimate Sammy Roberts magazine, basically, and it was yeah like an entire sort of like chunk of the game a perfect chunk where basically your um, main character squall goes on this mission to this um uh kind of like french looking sort of uh you know coastal town and mm-hmm. like fights all these soldiers fights a big like bird thing on on top of this radar tower and gets chased by a robot back to the beach and then it's like a oh, big is that kind a of sort of sco- is it a spider or a scorpion yeah that's right that spider chases you um yeah and I played that demo probably like six or seven times. It's um, but that's a really great little chunk of the game that you know you, you, it's not the beginning of the game, so you're kind of like forced to try and work out who the different characters are. But I, I have strong memories of that. How about you, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the demos that jump out are ones where it just had like a decent slice of the the powers, or they were slightly more systemic, so you could just mess around with them for hours. I mean, the, mm. the obvious one is Metal Gear Solid Two with Zone of the Enders. Um, you know the the tank. He had like a big chunk of the tanker level, um, and you know we just played that arsing around for hours and hours, just messing with the guards. You know, having fun with the tranquilizer dart, filling people with tranquilizer darts, <laughs> seeing the different you know interactive elements of that level, messing with the sort of the the stealth kind of phases. You could really play that for ages. Um, that's a, that's a, that's a real classic. Um, like playing. I think there's lots of games I only ever played as demos on PC because I kind of got my fill. Like, I remember um, Blood on the PC, the first-person shooter, Mm. which was, like, very, very gory, thus the name. But, like, you could kind of get your fill. You know, you got the idea of what the game was about from the first level. I think we had a demo of... uh, uh, I remember a friend having a demo of Siphon Filter on PlayStation. Oh, Um, that street level, yeah. Yeah, which basically... I mean, importantly, it had the thing where you could fire a taser into someone and keep tasering them until they set on fire, which is really the only reason to play that game. So it was in the demo, so you didn't need the full game. You could just, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's just a game about a man who sets sets people on fire in in that street with electricity, um, which is, like, really all it should be. There was I couldn't remember if this was a demo or not, but it may have been, like, the whole game and it was just freeware. I can't quite remember, but on Amiga... We were obsessed with this game called Tanks, which was about these two little tanks firing back and forth at each other. It was one of those games where you control like the trajectory and power, and you're trying to like remember where your last bullet landed so that you could adjust for your next turn. So it was like almost a little bit like arcadey, kind of battleshipsy. But we played that loads and loads and loads. And a demo I was stung by was uh, the demo for Fahrenheit, the David Cage game, <laughs> which was the murder scene at the start which is the best scene in the game the kind of the escape from the diner and i remember playing that and thinking wow if the rest of the game is just like this this is going to be amazing and spoiler alert it wasn't but i did buy it off the back of the demo that's that's like a rare time i remember playing something and being so obsessed 
I remember the day that came out, taking the bus to Basingstoke after work so I could go and buy it from game because I was just like, I have to get Fahrenheit. It's going to be the best game ever, but mm. certainly it, not. It's funny because that, uh, that experience very much sums up people's relationship with David Cage games, which is like the germ of the idea is like perfect and the execution is actually like pretty great in terms of the sort of style of it and the sound and all that stuff. But then it's kind of just like robbed by some bullshit, you know, into the game halfway through or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I th- yeah. That's the thing with his games. I think he's got individual scenes in all his games, which are like almost essential things to play, mm. like, which are like brilliant, full, fully realized versions of what he's been trying to do, which is like a like a playable thriller film. Um, and yeah, that scene at the start of um, Fahrenheit is def- definitely one of those. And there are a couple other bits in Fahrenheit quite like where you're trying to do stuff against the clock and there's split screen. You can see the police approaching. You're like, oh shit, I've got to do this. And it really captures the kind of manic energy of those scenes in films. But then it's all a little bit like fighting an old lady who is also the internet. So, you know. Yeah. Um, the uh, video, Andy Kelly's video, uh, The Madness of Fahrenheit, is one of the funniest videos on YouTube. Um, <laughs> I watch it every year or so. That's brilliant. Um, you kind of a few of the ones you picked out there actually Matthew like the Metal Gear one I completely forgot about that uh, that you get so much of the tanker you basically get all of the good bits of the tanker like there's almost nothing you're kind of missing that's like it, I think it does it end when you go into like the hall where all the troops are being debriefed or something like that um, yeah it has the Olga fight right mm, yeah so it just ha- yeah you, I don't think you yeah it ends when you go into the hall that's right uh, I wonder if it, it gave away so much of the game that by the time Metal Gear Solid 2 came out, and people obviously very disappointed with Raiden, if people had just like had their fill of it a little bit, and I wonder if the demo sort of backfires slightly there, where you've given away such a big slice. In that case, you know, arguably the best bit of the game, and people are just a bit, I don't know, put out afterwards when they paid 40 quid for it. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Um, the demos um, on official PlayStation 2 magazine, I remember being incredibly like exciting in the early noughties when the console was just starting to take off. That was how I played like Ico for the first time. Mm. And I would just play I would just play everything on those discs though. I played quite a lot of Tarzan Freeride, for example. Um there was a good Silent Hill 2 demo in the um in official PlayStation 2 magazine as well, which was set inside the uh the apartments, which is probably the best bit of Silent Hill 2. So yeah. Um how about the eight hour Deus Ex special, Matthew? Are we yeah. gonna be doing that? Uh I don't know. I like I'm not a huge Deus Ex guy. Like I I like them a lot. You know, but I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm a super fan. You know, I haven't. I, I don't go back and think on it. It's it's not like a like a sort of holy text for me in the way that it is for some PC writers. I think. Mm. Weirdly, I know the um, other three Deus Ex games better than I know this one. I've yeah. only just played. I've played through Deus Ex the once in 2007, but I don't remember much from it, and I didn't do it very well. I don't feel like I ever kind of truly got to grips with it. So, yeah. That- that review, though, the Kieran Gillen review, is like was absolutely amazing. Like I remember reading that and being like, "Oh wow, this is the, this is going to be the best game ever." Because he he kind of structured it around replays of, the, of like a couple of levels in it. It was mm. basically the the uh, oh, I can't even remember the area now. The kind of second, the, basically the first big urban area after you've done the the, the, the Statue of Liberty opener. Um, and he was just talking about like. You know, it was like ten walkthroughs of this one base building attack. I remember thinking, like, "Oh, this game is going to be so good," and he, it was true. Like everything he said was true, but it, in words, things move more smoothly than they do in the game. Like a lot of that game is is quite like janky. You know, it's quite um, like physically not the most satisfying thing to play. So, like technically, you are doing these things, but it doesn't sound as badass as it sounds on the page. 
Absolutely. Um, I would agree with that. Very unrefined, that first day of sex. Also, there's quite a lot that people don't really remember about it, about how strange it gets. Um, but <laughs> in terms of like its ambition, it was just incredible for the time. So um, mm. no dissing it here. But uh, no. next question there, Matthew. Howdy, you two. First, just wanted to say that having a third person forgot her name. Sorry, that's uh, Catherine they're referring to there. Was great. Second, my question. How do journalists get over the psychological hump of starting a new game? Maybe it's just me, but I find the first couple of hours of most AAA games to be so tiring. The controls are always different. You have to patiently wait for the game to let you free, let you get free and try things out. And you're not sure how the game will punish you for failure. And journalists don't have the guides and videos I have access to. Any tips? PS, PS3 or Xbox 360. No nuance, please. Nuance from this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't say I really suffer that myself. I don't know if it's because I've been doing it for long enough. Like, I, I find that, you know, increasingly these days, like, everything is designed so much for, like, ease of use and accessibility that I, I, I really, I don't, I, I can't really think of any games where I've just struggled to understand, like, the basics of how to, like, play it or get into it. Or I'm waiting for a particular, th- you know, to see how it opens up. Like I'm, you know, I don't have that like impatience as such. I think that there is, there are moments, or there are games where you can miss the the point of what they're trying to do sometimes. And and you know, that's when people say something didn't click with them. That's I think often what they're like referring to. You know, you can play a game and then read someone else's review of it and be like, oh, I, like, I kind of completely missed that that was like the heart of this thing or I kind of ignored that element of the game. I didn't realise it was kind of as vital or... Um, I've got to think of an example now. Um, take, for example, um, like the Desperados and Shadow Tactics, the the kind of the real-time strategy sort of stealth games um, that Me, Me, Me made recently. Um, you know, I if people don't get on with those, often you see like, oh, it's really hard. I keep failing, having to keep reloading, and you're like, yeah, but like quick saving and quick loading is kind of like part of that game's rhythm, and maybe it doesn't do a brilliant job of explaining that, or maybe it could do a better job of explaining that. But you know, if if you don't click with that element, for example, you may bounce off the whole thing um, and not get into the magic of it. And uh, you know, I've had that a couple of times with games where. I have, you know, I just haven't got into the groove with them, and but it's quite rare that that happens. I think that sometimes I'm, I'm like throwing myself at a game until it like properly clicks. And um, I've had that bit with Yakuza Zero, really, where I'm not like I don't naturally like love Yakuza Zero. Right, it takes a, it's taken a little bit of sort of like patience to kind of get used to the rhythm of it, which is this very stop-start side quest structure where. You can just follow the main plot, but the game obviously wants you to to dip into all these side stories because that's kind of like where a lot of its best writing is. But yeah, that's not something I naturally kind of adore. So there's a little bit of like getting used to it, I suppose. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a, that is a perfect example though, where like the best stuff isn't necessarily the main path. Hmm. And if you don't find the best stuff, you'll be like, "Well, screw this game." But I think I'm quite um, I, like I, I lean towards kind of. Comp- sort of completionist tendencies when i'm playing things anyway like i'm quite thorough it's sort of yeah i don't know it's it's not really like a guides thing there's very few games where i find like difficulty is the main barrier to me actually like getting into it and it clicking um sekiro sekiro was one i had to like properly throw myself at and kind of acclimatize the combat i think everyone goes through this process with sekiro though you basically you reach the boss i mentioned in previous episodes um genichiro ashina and then at that point you either kind of 
understand how the combat works or you're too frustrated by how difficult it is and how many times you're replaying it that you kind of just want to skip out and do something else, which I completely mm. sympathise with. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's not it's not that big a barrier, but uh, yeah, maybe that's just because, you know, you and I have spent so much time playing games professionally. It's hard to ever truly get stumped, I guess, especially with modern games. Um, yeah. yeah. On, what about the other part of the question, Matthew? PS3 or Xbox 360? Well, th- I'm 360. Yeah. I'm so, so clearly that generation was... You know, that's what I played. I had a PS3, but just for Uncharted. Yeah, we've established this. Um, and Heavy Rain, maybe. Do you play? You played Heavy Rain? <laughs> I, yeah, I did play Heavy Rain. I reviewed Heavy Rain actually. Mm. It was, yeah. And now I kind of want to do a, do a David Cage games episode. Um, that, that sounds like a threat, doesn't it? But uh, <laughs> that was from uh, Robert, Robert August Demeyer, by the way. I forgot to read out the name of um, who sent in the question. So next one, Matthew. A completely ungames related question from a loyal listener: Galaxy or Cadbury's? Just asking as Easter is coming up. Uh, that's from Leslie Smith. That's my mum. Cadbury's. Yep, Cadbury's for me too. Um, that that might baffle some um, some of our American listeners, but uh, I, th- <laughs> I think it, that's like um, that's very straightforward. I think Americans know who uh, know what Cadbury is anyway, because they didn't the government do some kind of like crazy like limiting on importing chocolate things, so you had to eat lots of America's big corporations sort of sort of salty, waxy, naff chocolate. I think that happened, didn't it? Yeah. I think Americans come over here and then they eat, like, because they've been eating Hershey's, which is just the worst thing on earth um, <laughs> their entire lives. They come over here and get a taste of the, the good stuff. And it's just like, must be mind blowing. Oh my God. Imagine <laughs> that. I wondered who Leslie Smith was. That clears it up. <laughs> okay, so number six, Matthew. Where did Matthew get the Mr. Basil Pesto name from? Does he just have an affinity for the fragrant tasting sauce? Um, I do like Basil Pesto as a thing. Um, short version of a slightly weird story. Uh, my dad came up with it uh, when I was a kid. Uh, he was, uh, we were on holiday somewhere, and he he was he, we were like just riffing or being silly on something. I was riffing with my dad. Uh, <laughs> 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 he says that, <laughs> and he, uh, he talked about like a uh, like a murder in a restaurant or something, and then just a. Cu- he said culinary detective Basil Pesto, and it's stuck in my head ever since then, and I don't know why. I uh, like, I then created it just as an email, and from the email came my online username, and now it's everything. So yeah, that's 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 that. Yeah, it's it's a good it's a good username though for like multiplayer games because it's a name like anyone can say it. You know, if you see it, it's not hard to pronounce. It's a good name for like shouting out. It's got it's got the structure of first name surname, so you can shout either one, and I know that you're talking talking to me. Um, every once in a while, I forget that it's like the name of my Discord, and then I'll call into like a you know press P, like a PR interview or a, you know an online interview these this last year, and there'll always be a slightly baffled moment where someone you know the PRs or the person I'm interviewing will say. Because it's always an American, hmm, basil pesto. <laughs> and then I'll have to go, it's a culinary detective from my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> you tell them this story. Um, no, yeah. I don't ever tell them that story. I just say, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, this is weird, right? I bought basil pesto from the supermarket a couple of weeks ago, and I felt weirdly self-conscious about it, I think, because <laughs> of like, knowing you. Um, but, yeah, basil pesto does sound that name of, like, a kind of like late eighties, early nineties BBC kind of detective. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. I think that's what, I think that's what he's going for. Yeah, but, but clearly the uh, sense of humour is um, genetic. 
But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, so back to a more gamey question here, Matthew. What do you wish games nowadays had more of? This is from uh, Quasi Otter on Twitter. What they had more of? Uh, color, like lots of bright, exciting colors. It, it kind of bugs me that we've got these television screens that do these amazing colors that pop with HDR, but it's just used for you know everything's so muted. Um, I wish everything you know. Nintendo are obviously still doing the whole kind of bright, colorful games. I wish other people were doing them too. Um, Either natural fondness for anything with colour, even if it looks naff. What's that Square Enix one coming up soon? That Balan Wonderworld. Mm-hmm. Like, not my cup of tea mechanically, but like just the look of it. I'm like, oh, I'm glad that exists. Systems that encourage replayability. No. Like, you know, I, I love, you know, a lot of the games I played in my childhood. You know, I played them so much because they're the only games I had, but also because they had vast amounts to do i think particularly like the goldeneye perfect art model the way that they sort of change over difficulty modes and there are always unlockable challenges and extra layers i i whenever a game does that it automatically gets just a bonus point for like nostalgia and it's one of the reasons i love hitman so much is it just has structurally so much reason to just keep playing it which which I, i really really rate in games um what about you better side quests i wish were a thing like um I got a bit bummed out by a lot of Ghost of Tsushima's side quests of like escort a person to this place and do this and do that, retrieve this, and it feels like a very very few developers have actually like put the time in to make a side quest more than that. And I don't, I guess it's a problem I don't really know how to solve for someone who doesn't design games for a living. But mm. yeah, I think side quests are just like here's a bit of dialogue, here's a thing. You go fight a room full of enemies, and then you get a thing at the end of it, and that's kind of it. Like um, I guess. Um, I kind of always want to see side quests that are a bit like Mass Effect 2's loyalty missions, which just were like so rich in story and were like almost like episodes of a TV show you would play to kind of get the um, the kind of like full tale of who a kind of character in your party is. Uh, I thought they were just that was just a really strong hook for a for a side yeah. quest. And I hear that Witcher, The Witcher Three I've not played, but you know everyone says that's got really good side quests. So yeah. I think I just wish there was more of that. Like I, I would always take fewer side quests, but just take some like really good ones. Mass Effect Two actually has very few side quests apart from like this kind of stuff, and um, mm. I think that's it's a shame that it was never a bit more influential. But um, mm. I also wish that uh, games that had sword combat had actual sword combat and not just like constantly holding down a counter attack button. I just sort of like Sekiro's combat system. I basically want to see versions of that in everything. Um, but it's quite it's quite nice when you see it in sort of like Jedi Fallen Order, for example, which is the the timing of the parry. I always found it slightly off in that game, but like the um, the actual feeling of the lightsaber and pulling off moves and stuff felt like a proper mm. combat game in a way that no offense to Assassin's Creed, which I dunk on far too often on this podcast, but that's <laughs> um, Assassin's Creed's always had combat that has never quite sit quite uh, sit right with me. Um, mm. Yeah, those are my two suggestions, Matthew. Um, mm. Next up, then. Hello, you two. First off, Matthew's take on Game Freak and Pokemon genuinely made me laugh out loud while listening to it. This is good. This is a very self-serving question. I'm glad I get to read this one out. (laughs) Absolutely brutal and spot on. (laughs) Yeah, you know it. Secondly, are there any games you have played recently that you wish you played back when they were first released? I just completed Rogue Trooper Redux the other day. As fun as I think it was, I would have enjoyed it way back more on PS2. Thank you, and keep up the honest brutality. P.S. Samuel, please stop trying to buy. Please stop buying dog shit games like Star Wars, Terrace Cassai. 
I am a Star Wars nut, and even I wouldn't touch that garbage, says Chris Dirty. So There you go. You've been told. I do have an I've answer. I've been praised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a bit of like it's a carrot and stick, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah, hard to know I like this stand. question a lot. Uh, so <laughs> with Terrace Carsey, yes. I mean, I'm not going to defend that too hard. Um, we covered it in the podcast. It was merely a whim purchase, and I've still not played it, so it's indefensible, really. But yeah, well, it's I, double jeopardy. You can't be put on trial for the same thing twice. <laughs> yeah. So instead, I do have an answer to this first question about um, yeah. games you played recently. You wish you played back when they first released. So Ocarina of Time is something I didn't play at the time. I didn't have an N64 until uh, the noughties, and uh, it's a very hard one to play. I mean, obviously, it's from the like it's one of the founding 3D games. So um, to expect it to stand up is a big ask but nonetheless i think like the controls and the types of stuff it has you doing and i just um i found it quite hard work to this year i was i've been playing a bunch more of it because i would like to be fully educated by the time we do our zelda episode when um hmm. skyward sword comes out but i think i might just have to give up on this one because it's um yeah it's just not i i feel like if i was going to be into it after the six hours i've thrown it but um it would have happened by now and it hasn't happened uh so yeah how about you matthew I mean, if if going into Lord Jabby Jabby's belly hasn't won you over, then I don't know what will. <laughs> <laughs> Hard work, that. Um, I wish I'd played the Yakuza series as they came out, um, mainly because I really, really like the Yakuza games. I've come to them quite late, and now there's like 200 hours of them to get through um, in chronological order, and because the story is told, you know, that central story is told over six games... Like, I feel like I have to play them in order, so that's a bit of a slog. Um, uh, I uh, Yeah, I, I kind of, like, I played Resident Evil 2 very late, um, weirdly. Uh, like, I played it before the remake came out to kind of familiarise myself with it, and I'd sort of, like, I had friends who'd played it, and I'd seen it played, but I kind of, you know... That was that was still excellent. You know, I was playing it on the Vita, and I had a really really good time with it. And I thought, oh man, this would have probably blown my mind if I'd played it back when it actually came out. Um, and very recently, I've just started digging into the Jake Hunter series, which is a series of sort of detective visual novels on DS, 3DS. I think there's one on Switch as well. Um, which I dismissed one of these. Uh, in a very small reviews roundup in Endgamer years ago, and they never came back to it, um, despite it being a Japanese detective thing, which is like entirely now what I am 100% about. <laughs> so I'm going back and playing into that. Um, I don't know yet if it is a good series, but I'm kind of, uh, you know, it, it, bu- it bugs me that I, I ignored something which I, you know, am now so clearly into. Um, so I will report back. We should do a detective game episode at some point. Yeah, um, this is something we pondered around Disco Elysium, isn't it? But um, mm, yeah, uh, we'll give um, it some thought, or, or at least um, when the um, Famicom Detective Club games come out, maybe. Oh yeah, yeah. But yeah, the Jake Hunter games are weird because they've actually got a bit of that Yakuza vibe. So similar kind of like set in like little bars in like back alley streets in Tokyo, and it's all the, it's the kind of like the jazz music and and drinking whiskey in these bars. Like it's it's so much my bag. Um, but I've got to play more of it to see if it's actually a good game. Yeah, it's funny. Yakuza is one where I did play it when it came out on PS2 and it didn't capture my imagination. I think you did actually need the sort of softening up of the whole thing and make it look a bit nicer with Kiwami 
to and Yakuza Zero to actually like to get me into the series before the act of walking around Camarocho was not not as good in those PS2 games. It just mm. it didn't feel as good. The way enemies would kind of appear and attack you was just quite daft in the PS2 one. It was like random battles in an RPG basically. Um, so yeah, but um, even Yakuza Zero is starting to feel a bit dated. But uh, I wish I'd played that a few years ago. And um, like you, I could be caught up with what's going on now. So, next question, Matthew. Dear Matthew and Mamuel. Classic. I enjoyed the episode on Super Mario 3D World. I'm in an interesting position with Mario because I've never had a Nintendo console or handheld until the Switch. That means that in quite a short period of time, I have played through Odyssey, 1, 3, brackets again, World, 64, Sunshine, Galaxy, and now 3D World for the first time. And I have to say, I've been enjoying 3D World enormously. It feels like a true and worthy sequel to 3 End World. What I'm wondering is, did it seem worse when it was announced slash released simply because of the fear that Nintendo were abandoning the 3D lineage of 64, Sunshine and Galaxy? Whereas for me, coming from a future where Odyssey exists, brackets, magnificently, and where true 3D platformers have had a broader comeback, I can enjoy 3D World entirely on its own terms. Have there been occasions in your own experiences where your enjoyment of something has been enhanced by coming very late to the party so there is quite a lot more of this um question matthew i'll get to after this bit because there's bits to cover here already so let's start with abandoning the 3d lineage of 64 sunshine and galaxy did you fear that when 3d world came out um not not fear that it was gone forever but that definitely factored into it you know in terms of you know this game was coming off the galaxy we were so excited to see what could the galaxy team possibly do next and we've talked a lot about about 3d uh, world on this podcast but you know i felt like it was a much sort of safer more limited game and that they were kind of reacting to I'd, i was worried they had some kind of internal sense that 3d mario was was like wrong in some way even though it so clearly wasn't um uh, I think you're right, though. Like, Odyssey afterwards, you were like, oh, yeah, this is still 100% the people that made Galaxy. Like, there's no doubt about it. Um, so, you know, it's a, a very good game. It's it's a, just a very good blip between the, the natural... You know, there is a much more th- natural through line from Galaxy to Odyssey, I think. Um, so, yeah, we shouldn't really have worried. It's just at the time, like, when Wii U was struggling a bit, we just wanted something which was just a 100% solid gold win for the console, mm. just for ourselves, just for, like, morale. And we were, you know, if anything was going to be that, it was going to be the Mario game. And it just wasn't quite what we wanted, which probably factors into my feelings around it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think um, I, I think Matthew's answered that one. He is the Nintendo expert on this podcast. So, um, <laughs> oh, no. Well, obviously not being in that position, I didn't really fear that. And I did just enjoy... 3D World on its own terms when it um, when it released. Um, how about this part, Matthew? About have there been occasions in your own experiences where your enjoyment of something has been enhanced by coming very late to the party? There are maybe some games I bounced off because I was a bit young and didn't really appreciate them or understand them, or you know, and 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 maybe if I came to them now, I might dig them a bit more. I'd go with Chrono Trigger for this one because when that mm. came out on DS in 2009 in Europe, I think it was that. Mm-hmm. I, I got so, so into that. I, I finished it. I played about 50 hours of it. I got a couple of the different endings, and that's a, a wonderful game. It's actually like, um, it's probably the least RPG-like RPG ever. It's kind of, it's more of an interactive story than anything. The combat is not that hard. 
There's very little to customise in the game. Um, there's some cool moves that your characters can pull off as a kind of team, but otherwise it's um it's just it's just a really kind of like nice little collaboration between um uh, the Final Fantasy and uh, Dragon Quest people. And uh, yeah, mm. I have a lot of affection for that game. Hello to you both. Thank you for this podcast. It's been making uh, it's made homeworking a lot more bearable. No worries. Here's my question. Which game would you recommend to someone that highlights the best of the medium, even if it's a game that you're not keen on? Keep up the great work, Jordan D. That's a tough one. I um... That is tough. I was talking about this with Catherine last night, actually, because mm. I, I, I was really struggling for an answer. I've got one. Have you got an answer? Um, sort of. I think about, like, this question weirdly made me think about what if you were trying to get someone who didn't play games to understand how great games that- were. That's how I framed it, yeah. Yeah, and I remember thinking in... <laughs> I had a friend who didn't wasn't that into games in the uh, early noughties, or sorry, late noughties, and um, I thought, oh, maybe they'll think like, like flower's good and they'll dig flower. And they like watched it and went, it's just some fucking wind and some petals. And I was there thinking, <laughs> oh, like, may, maybe like games like that that are quite meditative or, you know, a bit more kind of like, of that kind of like indie vibe are maybe just seemed like more of a tonic to us because we're so used to games with like blood guts and like shooting um yeah yeah what what was your answer to that one so i i initially started off thinking down like the rhythm route because i was thinking well everyone understands music and like 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 something that's like inherently understood is just like tapping something to a beat or whatever but then i was like well actually like you know, guitar here. Guitars are a bit confusing and all that kind of stuff. So I bend that off. Um, it's quite a boring. I'd have come down to. I think it's probably Wii Sports Tennis. Uh, okay. um, and the reason the Wii is massive is because fundamentally, it is a console which got people who weren't interested in the medium interested in the medium, and it did it with Wii Sports. Like you know what tennis is. If you can hold this thing and mimic a real life action, you can play it. And that's like that. You know that's that's the magic of getting someone to interact because I think controls are always the the big barrier. Like, you know, the people I know who don't play games, if you hand them the control, that's what freaks them out because it's just you know it's quite an abstract thing to start off with. You know, the buttons and the sticks and all this jazz. Where if you can just mimic something, that's much easier. So yeah, that's my slightly slightly boring answer. <laughs> no, I quite like that answer. I, if I was just going to pick something that like has a great combination of everything, so you know, systems and writing and world building and, you know, music and imagination. I would probably pick, like, Dishonored 2 or Breath of the Wild. Those are the two that I would pick. It's like, well, these are just really fucking good at everything that I think is important in a game. So knock yourself mm. out. Uh, so next up, Matthew, we've got another longish one here. So this is from Gav Greer. Just started listening recently and wanted to say I'm loving it. Usually my podcasts deal with news, so your show themes are providing a lovely change of pace. My question is about GTA games on Nintendo. Why are there not more of them? I can only think of Chinatown Wars. I often wonder if it's because it's a franchise Nintendo don't want to be associated with, or if Rockstar have no interest in porting them to Nintendo systems. Seems like they seems like it's a lot of money to be made by both sides here. Anyway, thanks for the entertainment on my walks and runs during this truly shitbag of a time. What do you think, Matthew? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I know a few more GTA ports. Um, there were ports of GTA 1 and 2 on the Game Boy Color. Uh, there was Grand Theft Auto Advance on GPA. And then, of course, um, yeah, Chinatown Wars on the DS. Weirdly, there were news reports that GTA 3 and Vice City 
were announced for the GameCube. But and I found the reports online, but it seems to stem from like one website. I don't really know where this comes from, uh, and there was never any like proof of these things. So I don't know if that's totally bogus. But there was a bit of a when Sony's exclusivities up on these games, they will come to Xbox and GameCube. I don't know whether that's true. Um, I remember like when Chinatown Wars came out, people were asking this like, why the DS and not the Wii? Because the Wii was obviously massive, and one of the houses at the time was you know basically said something along the lines of. Um, you know, oh yeah, we could definitely do it. You know, it, we we've chosen not to because we don't necessarily have a a big idea. Like we 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 had lots of ideas. We wanted to do something a bit different. It, you know, it interests us to try new things. That's why the DS was a fit. So I think the decision making came from them. There's a lot of like bogus theorizing that you know Nintendo have a certain ban on certain games, which just isn't true. Like they were thrilled to have Giant Town Wars. They made a big song and dance about it at their E3 conference. Um, yeah, so I think it just comes from Rockstar. I mean, obviously, the power of the machines is probably the big factor. Like, they've always been out of step with what Rockstar were doing. Like, the Wii couldn't have done the 360 games. You know, the Switch, yeah, would probably, you know, who knows? Could Switch do the, you know, GTA Five and Red Dead? It probably could, yeah. but it'd, be, it'd probably be too much of a headache to, like, make GTA Online work on Switch and stuff like that. Um, and also, yeah. I, yeah. But I, I, I don't think it, you know, there's no real reason to, you know, Rockstar have released tons of games on Nintendo platforms over the years, and like some quite good ports, there was a great port of um, Max Payne on the GBA, and they did like Smuggler's Run and stuff like that on, on the GameCube, like they're not, I think people misremember them as, as being quite distant, but I don't think they were. Yeah, I think that the main factor in the um, sort of PS2 era when GTA was blowing up was that the GameCube's um, disc only held, I think, like 1.2 gigabytes of, like, uh, you know, it was storage, basically. And obviously the GTA games were, like, full of audio from the radio stations and the voice acting and stuff like that. Um, I wonder if that was a factor, you know? Every radio station would just have to have been redone as Nintendo tunes. <laughs> Yeah, and like one station will be hosted by like Wario, and um, that would actually fit quite well. But it's still, it's Wario doing the same script from GTA, <laughs> so it's just really incongruous. Uh, I mean, we heard on the episode where you talked about the um, starvation of GTA on GameCube led to you to play um, True Crime Streets of LA, which was like, you know, there are a few games on the GameCube that sort of tried to fill the gap. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably, I think you're right, I think there are more than people remember, but... They don't seem the modern rock star seems less preoccupied with um, Nintendo. They seem more into like get GTA Online to as you know as many new platforms as possible, and then yeah. sell some shark cards, you know, and um, and stuff like that. So uh, that's probably a bit unfair because they made a massive uh, single player Red Dead Redemption Two that people really loved. But anyway, yeah, um, Chinatown Wars that would be a good one to have on Switch actually because the PSP port of Chinatown Wars, even that lacks the touchscreen stuff, the DS one looked really nice, and that would probably look pretty good on the um, on the Switch. Mm. But uh, yep. So uh, there's another one here from Gav Greer. Uh, Matthew, do you want to read that one out? Yeah, I also wondered about your thoughts on re-reviewing games post-launch. Days Gone got a bit of resurgence on PS5 because people were benefiting from bugs being patched and the boost in frame rate. I'm about 30 hours in and really enjoying it, but it did get a hard time on launch. So how do you feel about re-reviewing games post-launch? Um, it gets a bit complicated. Like I say, I mean, with a multiplayer game, I think it makes more sense, like a live service game. Uh, something like GTA 5 I would find very hard to re-review because 
GTA Online, even though it's something I quite enjoy, um, for a lot of people, GTA Online is the reason they buy GTA Five now. They're not playing that, you know, eight almost eight year old single player campaign. They're basically like, I'm going to set up my mm. garage and I'm going to set up my drug business and I'm going to set up my bunker and I'm going to start selling supplies across the city and hope I don't get like nuked from orbit, which is basically the GTA Online experience. Um, <laughs> I think um, it's a nice it's a nice idea. I think it's like it sends a good symbol when you can re-review something like like Apex Legends. I think does warrant like a re-review because that has the maps are completely different now. There's loads more characters. Um, single player games though I feel like a patch wouldn't be enough to make me reassess it um, what do you think yeah yeah. I'm, I'd never like I've never been on a mag which has rescored games um, but I do find like newer mags do definitely like deal with this and like when you redesign the mag this was like a big discussion we had on like official Xbox which was making sure that the back end of the mag had a space where we could cover games like in later in their lifespans um you know you have like a replay section or like the extended play kind of articles in pc gamer um i think it's a bit of a slippery slope of re-reviewing like if you did outright reviews like where do you draw the line is it just this patch is it you know a complete overhaul of the system or someone's gutted the free-to-play elements or something and relaunched it you know does that warrant a new score i mean it's definitely part of the modern reviewing landscape um most people seem to be dealing with this by like treating bigger games you know almost as like a you know some writers have it as their regular beat and they'll just be covering it and they have that ongoing relationship with it i think it's much easier to do online like in in magazines where page space is quite precious i don't think you can be giving over huge chunks of the mag to covering what was going on in quite fast moving games a month ago Mm. which is what would happen in mags if you do cover them so yeah, like I'm kind of lucky in that I've never really had to deal with this firsthand because I've never worked on a site. So, yeah, uh, yeah, that's those are pretty much my views on it though. Like, it's um, yeah, I, I I still don't think people really have like a codified answer for the right way to do this. But um, yeah, uh, like in, in principle, I'm not like I'm not like against it. But um, I think that just by covering a game regularly and keeping people updated, you can give people the story of that game without rescoring it. When you're rescoring it, that's when it starts to get a bit more contentious. But um, yeah, yeah. Next up, then Matthew, we'd love to hear you guys discuss uh, generally the meta in games, things like the best gun in shooters, best character build in RPGs, etc. Are you generally in favour? Concerned about their influence on games or developers or industry? Was it ever a true pre-internet analog? Um, I mean, I would say that like <laughs> pre-internet analog would be odd job in Goldeneye being like you know having the hats <laughs> and fucking people up. That was like you know. If there was a case, if there was a tier list and Goldeneye, he would surely be at the top. But um, what do you make of this, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's 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 kind of this feels like a sort of something that's kind of passed me by a little bit. Like I don't play any one game enough to like warrant needing this information or getting into these elements. I mean, it's kind of like the last question in a way, in that you know it's about your ongoing relationship with the game from a like journalism perspective particularly from a print perspective you know i always felt like that was those were topics that like lived in the community like they didn't you don't need any kind of gatekeeping you don't really need you know you don't need someone saying this i think where that stuff's interesting is is like being aware of it and being able to pluck like interesting stories from it 
like I think there's some interesting stuff where people discover something mad or something particularly broken, which like everyone's always interested to hear about like wild tales in a game, you know, regardless of whether they actually play it. Um, but yeah, it's it's not something I personally dig into much, but I mainly play single player story games. Like Phoenix Wright doesn't really have a meta. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, for me, like um, you know, I'm really going to paraphrase um, my former colleague of mine PC, uh, on PC Gamer, Phil Savage here, um, who kind of made the point to me that like if you're so concerned with what esports players are doing and like stuff like that, you're you're more likely to not to enjoy the game than you are if you just pick a character who you actually enjoy playing as. Like, um, it doesn't matter if uh, I don't know, uh, like Loba in um, Apex Legends is you know gets like the lowest like win count or whatever versus the other characters. You're actually playing the game to enjoy it, and you can still win with that character. It's not like a secret source to it. And to be honest, like when people talk about the meta and stuff like that, I actually I think that's like the least interesting part of games coverage. I don't give a shit really. I just again think like talk about why it's fun and, and tell me you know tell me how to have the best time with the game. Like uh, yeah, I sort of I'm not really interested in like tier lists for Smash Bros or anything like that. So uh, well, oh yeah, that's it's particularly egregious in Smash Brothers, which is just like a game all about excess and if you have to start cutting out that excess to like appreciate the technicality of it then i don't know you're probably playing it wrong i think but. yeah yeah god help you basically um yeah so <laughs> i hope that helps i think that just that speaks so to the fact that i do play some multiplayer games but i don't i don't like engage them on that level i'm not really interested well, in like i'm just too shit at games to need that high level strategy yeah. You know, like my meta is not being the first person who dies in Apex Legends. <laughs> yeah, which is, which is, that is my role. <laughs> yeah, I hope you, um, thank you, uh, Joseph uh, Nubida, for that one. I hope um, our lack of insight there was at least entertaining. <laughs> um, so this next one's a good one, Matthew. Do you want to fire away? I'd love to hear your thoughts on games that deserve contemporary remakes slash spiritual successes because no one else has properly touched on the original concept since. No One Lives Forever and Bully are good examples for me, says Alex Hater. Mm. So I have a very direct answer to this, and that is that like a lot of people are always talking about the fact that Konami you know, isn't making a proper like Silent Hill sort of game. And I would yeah. ask, why can't you? Why can't some indie developers make their version of Silent Hill too? Um, because when you look at the component parts of those early Silent Hill games, there's nothing in there that really like seems beyond a, a modern like mid-sized um, game developer. So mm. I feel like I'm surprised there aren't more horror games in that vein. We've seen a lot of like first-person horror games, and then you know Five Nights at Freddy's kind of like like riffs on that and stuff like that. But if you want that truly if you want to tap into the vibes that Silent Hill 2 gave you, you can do it. Just don't do it in that kind of like boring psychological horror way that you've been like um, talking about uh, in recent mm. uh, months, Matthew. Uh, do you have an answer for this one? Uh, well, weirdly, the first thing at the top of my list was um, proper pre-rendered survival hero from PlayStation 1 and 2 era, mm. uh, <laughs> um, which I'd love to see amazingly, you know, done, done well, it can be amazing. Like, you know, one of the most amazing... Uh, horror games I've played was the the Resident Evil one remake on GameCube. I think that style of game can still work. Mm. Um, there was the medium recently kind of tapped into it, and when I was playing that, I was thinking, oh, I, I remember liking games like this. I just don't think the medium is a, a good version of it. 
like it's just not scary um, because you, like you say I think everyone's taken the wrong lessons from Silent Hill where they're like oh there's a big psychological twist and you're like well that's cool but it's also scary like before that <laughs> the kind of it's all in the music and the style of it and then the like the fact that everyone seems a bit strung out in Silent Hill like it's sort of yeah, you're right. People are taking the wrong lessons, but I actually, yeah, pre-rendered did come to mind. Like um, Resident Evil, those kind of pre-rendered Resident Evil games definitely still have a scary magic to them, even with their weird voice acting. Um, yeah, it's all mm-hmm. in the sound design and the the weird look of the pre-rendered backgrounds and stuff like that. That's um, 100% the genre I'd love to see come back in uh, in a in a new and better form. Um, I also just just a couple of others uh, I noted down. You know, I'm surprised there aren't like more direct ace attorney clones like there are plenty of ace attorney games being made by capcom hmm. but i'm surprised no one's done that style of detective game um there was the one with birds there was avery attorney mm-hmm. um which was slightly different vibes but i i you know i'd, I'd obviously like more games like that um also a nintendo series i'm kind of sad has sort of vanished is golden sun which was an RPG series by Camelot, who make the Mario golf and tennis games. Um, two games on GBA, then one on DS. Um, like quite traditional RPGs with like turn-based battles. But what I liked about them was that the kind of the magics you had that you used in in combat also like doubled up as skills that you used in the world, almost for like Zelda level dungeoning. So it had like. The, the kind of like the nerdy stats RPG stuff, but it also had like the adventure of solving like physical puzzles in a dungeon a bit more like Zelda um, or maybe a better like a bit more involved version of like the um, the abilities you sometimes use in Pokemon to like cut the bushes and surf over the seas. Mm. It's like that, but good. Um, <laughs> I would love them to bring back Golden Sun, but I don't think it on DS was a big enough thing to them to ever make more of it. But I, I love that kind of combo. That was good. Next question is from Jamie John. I'd love to hear you both discussing the process of reviewing games some more. How do you know where to start? Do you have a checklist of things to include? What are some things to avoid? Brackets, apart from writing a diary entry from the POV of Nico Bellic, of course. Um, <laughs> Matthew, do you have a process? Do you have a, a list? No, I don't really have a process. Um, I'm just big into like playing the game, seeing what registers. I don't take many notes. Um, I think I've said this before. Like I, I just play the game and what sticks, stuff that jumps out at me or stuff that sticks with me is, is, is what makes it into the review. Like If something's memorable enough, I'll remember it. Yeah, I, I, I find my own process quite hard to unpick because I've, I've just so sort of natural at what I do now. You know, it's, it's so sort of second nature for me. Um, I'd say um, things to avoid, though... The number one thing I see from from like people starting out or like younger writers or older writers, you know, whatever, people who haven't done it as much, is reviews that are too much like previews. I think a lot of people make this mistake of telling you what something is without actually offering any opinion. Um, that's like the major pitfall I think most people fall into is they tell you like this is the story or like there's this level and 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 then when they do go into it they maybe don't dig deep into like how you know the specificity of like exactly why you feel you know what you feel and why you feel it like and it's that level of like drilling down and trying to pin down exactly what it was that kind of got you to feel that way i find is very valuable is i would say like my very broad top line like that's the note i've given more you know probably nine times out of ten that is the note the thing i try to train myself out of is 
again, like I mentioned this on the review scores episode a bit, I think, is like doing, well, I've got to talk about the sound now and I've got to talk about the graphics and stuff like that, which is that very itemized, like box out heavy 90s reviewing style. Um, not in all cases, but you know, that you saw a lot of that in mags back then. I like reviews that are just a bit, I like reviews that are a bit irreverent, you know, that's where they're mm. not afraid to kind of make jokes and stuff like that. That's quite important to me as a, as a reader and a writer. And I think that it can be easy to, to see like making jokes as sort of somehow you're not taking the process seriously enough when really that sort of levity was fundamental to, you know, PC gamer in its golden era and right up to today. Like it's, mm. and PC gamer is a very well respected outlet. So I always think that jokes have a place in, in a review. You want to be fun. You know, it's a, it's a form of entertainment in itself, oh. a review, you know? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, everything should be entertaining that you're that you're that you're doing. <laughs> yeah, hurts. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think a big hurdle, some another hurdle. Like I definitely had this early on. Is that you don't have to share every thought you had. Mm. Like I think some people are like, "Well, oh, these are my thoughts. I have to have, like, like this has to be a comprehensive record of what I felt." And actually, no one knows you. No one can hold you to that. No one knows that you thought that. Like even if you have this observation about about music, if it doesn't fit or you can't make it fit naturally, just cut it. Just dump that. You know that's absolutely fine. It's it's when you're like you water down the whole thing trying to get everything in. Like go big on your most interesting thoughts. Dump the other ones. Not all thoughts are made equal. <laughs> mm. You're great at reviewing games, though, Matthew. Like your your reviews are like legit entertaining. Oh, I, thank you very much. Well, you I'm not tell- very. Go- I, mean, I think I said this on the previous one as well. Like I I don't feel very comfortable with the kickings. Like I'm not a Charlie Brooker. Like I can't do a absolute hilarious monstering. And I think I tried to be more like that early on and realised that isn't really my vibe. You know, I take a great. Uh, I, I I take great more pleasure in trying to make a positive review entertaining because I think that's harder. It's it's trying to be like upbeat and sincere and also fun. That's quite that's quite a hard combo. Um, and I like most things, so it's a challenge I kind of run into quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, your um your, your uh, VGC reviews in the last year in particular, I think have been have been really really good. Um, I think it's a treat for people they get to see your you doing your thing with these um with some of these big games, you know. But yeah. Well, thank you, Sam. That's very kind. That's enough praise for one week, though. It's getting a bit too, uh, a bit too soppy in here. Go on, then, Matthew. Next one. Hi. Uh, please ask Matthew to review basil-related goods such as basil seed drinks. Okay, we, we can look into that. Um, the Patreon stretch goal is that a thing? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm also interested as a lifelong Nintendo fan for deeper insight uh-oh, into what is more specifically you like, dis- you both like and dislike about Dark Souls. I am not personally a fan of the game, but can see what makes it so appealing. Is it for Matthew, the idea that Dark Souls design just goes against a lot of modern Nintendo design philosophy that the game feels wrong? Thanks, says Aaron. Ooh. Mm. Um. I, don't, I've, I find it quite hard to tie Dark Souls to like, Nintendo thinking. Because yeah, it, it's just not a thing they would make. But I can't quite put my finger on why it's different. Um, yeah, I wonder if they're just like the kind of you know the the discussion of Nintendo sort of mechanics and how things feel and stuff. Like I don't know, just applying your expertise, I guess, to dissecting yeah, what is. Good. I mean, that yeah, and I, I think I've said it on this podcast before. The reason Dark Souls doesn't click with me is because uh, I don't like the rigidity rigidity of the characters. Um, 
I don't really like difficulty in games, which comes from what I perceive to be like a huge limitation on the character. You know, I want to have someone who's equipped for the job and then the challenges around them, where I feel the challenge comes from the character a bit in Dark Souls, is is, is, is a personal feeling. Um, I also find that I feel like they're games you have to know about before you can play them. And there's a lot of information you get from playing them which comes a bit too late. And specifically in Dark Souls and Bloodborne, the fact that I have to make a character and pick stats and pick a class for this world, which is so uncompromising to certain classes and certain stats, I feel is a bit brutal. Um, It's why the the game of theirs I've played the most was Sekiro, because it had a pre-made character, and it's like, this is what you got. This, this, This thing is, in one way or another, capable of doing this game, where I felt like in Dark Souls I'd made bad decisions because I liked the colourful, you know, class descriptions or whatever, and I'm like, oh, that sounds good. And then you play it and you're like, why am I getting my ass handed to me? Is it because I'm shit or I've picked a bad character? And then people are like, yeah, it's a bad character. Um, but, I don't know, that's probably me. Bad workman blames his tools. No, I think that that's... Um fundamental to my frustration with dark souls 2 oh, by the way i'm going back to playing dark souls with my um old pc gamer colleague wes this weekend as we're recording this. oh nice um and i do have to do a bit of homework to upgrade a sword before i can actually like take on this boss that's become a bit of a barrier um and that's a real bummer because again like i didn't know that the sword i had was going to like run out of usefulness at this point in the game because nothing in the game tells you that and um i think like arbitrary rpg mechanics are all the all are key to all my frustrations with Dark Souls. I don't think there's anything wrong with the combat. Combat's very good. I like the different ways that your moves interact with enemies. The kind of physics of it, of like knocking an enemy back, kicking them. Um, the kind of like the, obviously the level design is um, is really interesting. Uh, it's a very muddy looking game, I'd say by today's standards, the original Dark Souls. But you know, I have no problems with that. It's all just down to the numbers in the background. And like, like you say, oh, I've picked a melee character. Well. You're going to need a certain sword to even get past this bit. And if you'd have picked this like wizard guy, you can just throw fire at him from across the map. And you maybe would rather have done <laughs> right. that, you know. And it's like, oh, and, you know, this this high stamina is cancelled out because your trousers are too heavy. <laughs> and you're like, oh, give me a break. It's yeah. like, oh, you have to take all your clothes off and do it in your pants. And you're like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah. It's also things like... Our reviews. <laughs> Things like moving faster or slower because you're weighed down by stuff. I'm like, oh, what, in a game like this? Why even make that a thing I have to think about? And I'm sure fans would go, well, you know, the challenge is part of the magic of it. But, like, I think it's just I would probably have more of an appetite for this if I was in my early 20s and not my early 30s. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's partly it. Hopefully that um, that helps, though. But I don't think there's anything wrong. It's just... No, um, no, no, definitely. It's just not for me. Yeah, and like Matthew says, Sekiro was was the From Software game that really clicked with me. And uh, for a lot of the reasons that Matthew says. Um, next question then, Matthew. So, I listen to the podcast mostly while doing work, with work for me being games development. It's great to learn more about the side of the industry I know very little about. Since websites have taken over from traditional magazines and with the consumers having the ability to instantly and anonymously respond to something you have written, has that impacted how or what you have written? Or does that even cross your mind, especially when those same people can reach you on other social media accounts? Thanks, Chris Yules. Does this affect the way you write, Matthew? No, I, I, I think I'm still writing what I would have naturally written in print, so I, I don't, I'm not really too concerned. Um, like, I don't mind having avenues open for like discussion, and if people have like misconstrued something, 
you know, sometimes it's nice to have the right of reply. Like there's sometimes, you know, sometimes in the mag it would go out and I'd see on the, you know, the, the forum feedback, someone would have like, you know, misread what I was trying to say. And I wish I could have said, oh, for this specific person, well, actually it's this and kind of clear that up. Um, I don't really worry about like, I mean, truth is, I don't think I've ever really written for much, which has been big enough to kind of, I don't get thousands of comments under my reviews anywhere and, you know, they're mostly pleasant. Um, again, that sounds quite self-serving, but uh, no, I, I don't really worry about other people. I'm pretty confident in what I'm writing, and um, you know, if people disagree, then we can discuss it, or I can just block them on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it's actually like um, a recent example of this I can think of is I wrote about I wrote a piece about the Snyder Cut and why the aspect ratio is in like four by three rather than widescreen, hmm. and one of um, Zack Snyder's like weird fans tweeted me saying. You do realise that, it's because in the article I said that um, you don't think about what you're uh, not seeing by the film um, not being in widescreen after a certain point because you get used to the picture, etc. And um, this guy tweeted me saying, um, um, did you know that when you're watching in 4 by 3 you're technically seeing more of the picture? And um, I did think about responding, but then I ultimately just muted them. I thought if I block them, they'll probably find that quite satisfying. And when I looked at their replies to other people, it was all telling them like, you're wrong about Zack Snyder. Was this at Zack Snyder? <laughs> no, although he does seem to take things very personally. But um, in, in, like it is like it's definitely a factor. I think that on PC Gamer, I actually don't I didn't mind the comments being like toxic because it kind of it, most of the time it would stay contained in there. So I didn't feel too fearful about what I wrote. Yeah. I'm just not spicy enough to upset the right people. I'm such a fence sitter. I don't upset anyone. It's the magic of centrism. <laughs> yeah also if you want to hear my spicy takes they're all on this podcast and like it takes effort to listen to a podcast so people will like have to like listen to 40 minutes of audio in order to get that and all <laughs> they want to do on the internet is read your opinion and de- disagree with you immediately so uh yeah <laughs> next up then matthew so this is one of yours right uh best game that seems to have been forgotten i always loved ignition on pc says tom Piercy. Mm. i have some i have a good answer to this one so when i worked on play there was like a whole generation of slightly odd PS3 digital games that Sony had obviously like commissioned in response to um, Microsoft's Xbox Live Arcade taking off. And mm. I feel like loads of these games are like forgotten. So partly because some of them are just trapped on the PS3 and they'll probably right. never <laughs> go anywhere else. So there was like a weird sort of like movie it's kind of like a video where you found bits and hidden bits in the video, a bit of a hidden object game set within like a video called um, Lingering Shadows, which to look at looked like something that um, T. Micah might make. It was just lots of weird smoky monsters and, and stuff like that. That was a weird game. That's completely forgotten, I feel. Um, Tokyo Jungle is a game that I think like quite a lot of games journalists got into where you could play as like any animal in this slightly oddball um, Japanese game. Um, and The Last yeah, Guy, which is kind of like... You had to save civilians during the post-apocalypse and all the maps were... It was top-down game and all the maps were taken from like Google Maps. They were like real places. Um, oh. That was a really fucking odd game. And uh, Everyday Shooter <laughs> is another one of these games. So you can't play that on Steam. So um, that was a cool like music-based twin-stick shooter. How about you, Matthew? Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I think the DS and we had loads of like really great Obscuro stuff that hopefully we're surfacing in our best of year podcast that we're doing mm. um 
Uh, a game I really loved when I was a bit younger on the N64 was Beetle Adventure Racing, which was a game where you ro- raced little beetle, uh, the beetle cars, not beetle, the Beatles, uh, <laughs> or the band, the Beatles. Um, that would be good though. Anyway, um, it was, uh, what was good about this is it had like massively branching tracks, so there were loads of shortcuts and they were quite kind of sort of zany, you know, you could drive off and find like a UFO under the ice and all this kind of jazz. Um, but there was this quite interesting layer to it where it was about like, you know, winning the race and being first, but there was also a layer where you were trying to collect these sort of boxes which were on the different tracks, and there was like an optimal route to catch, you know, if you wanted to get all the boxes, all the point boxes or whatever in in this game, um, you had to, like, develop, like, learn these optimal routes across all these different branches to kind of nail it in three laps. Um, We played loads of this. It was like a really solid 8 out of 10. I want to say it was Electronic Arts published thing mm-hmm. um i want to say the developers were called paradigm i don't know if that's right um but uh i really like that little arcadey races not like combat races necessarily you know i'm not just asking for another mario kart clone but but stuff like that um like arcadey sports games like tony hawks i know like there's there's you know the remasters and bad one but like there was a time these were absolutely amazing 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 games i love pro skater 4 um i think it's really sad that that doesn't exist anymore um also the ssx series yeah seems to be a bit forgotten now yeah you can play the latest one on game pass i think the one they made in 2012 for 360 that's pretty good that was weird though because everyone was like oh yes ssx is coming back and it's like you know that game where like all the mad disco characters and bright colors well this one's about like surviving death mountain (laughs) and you're like oh that isn't quite what i wanted (laughs) this one's like you know the original ones were like macy gray is gonna do like a thousand flips in the air and this one was like you're gonna die in an avalanche (laughs) it's just very different vibe yeah, you know, it's funny because I just while you were talking about that, thought of another snowboarding game that has been forgotten. Um, that was Amped 3 on Xbox 360, which was like a kind of close to a, like a launch title, might have been a launch title. And the Amped games, as I understand it, were just quite straightforward, like snowboarding extreme sports games in the genre that you mentioned. But Amped mm. 3, they made a deliberate attempt to give it like, it's got quite a good story mode, a really funny story mode, and um, quite a kind of like oddball sense of humour. Uh, it's hard to describe its sense of humor. It's like uh, it's very kind of American and sitcommy, but um, it just it was a really great fit for it. And then it does like really these kind of extended pop culture riffs. Uh, sorry, like riffs with um, stop motion characters. And then there's like a Final Fantasy VII battle parody in it at one point. And like it's just uh, didn't really get the credit it deserved for being a bit unusual. There's loads. Mm. I can think of loads of different hidden gems. I'm sure we'll get to some more down the line, right? Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. So next up, Matthew, this is from Owen Christie. Hi, guys. Loving the podcast so far. Some absolutely hilarious content. I was clearing out the loft around Christmas time and found a huge box filled to the brim with old PS2 demo discs. People really want us to talk about this, Matthew. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have some really fond memories as a kid of getting the OPS uh, official PlayStation 2 magazine and playing some gems on the demos. But upon finding this box, I found they were actually filled with absolute naff for the first part. For the most part, sorry. Any funny stories from working on mags regarding demo discs? Keep up the good work. Um, we touched a bit on like your woes with recording footage for the uh, Endgamer disc. Yeah, right? I mean, that 
Yeah, that's pretty much... Like, we didn't have demo discs, we had video discs, which were mostly me dying in the first 15 seconds of every NES game ever, um, which now is quite funny internet content, but at the time was kind of depressing and um, didn't really, like, dazzle my um, colleagues. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I've never worked on a... You know, demo demo discs on Nintendo, just not not really a thing, so... um, yeah, sadly not, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, same, like, um, there was no demo disc where I worked either. But, like, um, I can say that uh, the actual, like, disc part of it, I, I've still got a few of the discs I did when I worked on um, X360 Magazine, which is the mag I imagine I enjoyed the most. And that was, like, those are, like, podcasts, basically, like, divided out into, episode, you know, like, trailer commentaries and gameplay commentaries. And I have good memories of making those, and I feel like they were, like, uh, and now that all the old podcasts are recorded back then are just no longer online there's no record of them anywhere uh, it's a it's quite nice to have the disc as a kind of reminder of like this is what you know the culture of a mag was like and stuff like that but um mm. yeah i imagine at some point we'll get a guest on the podcast who was a disc editor and can talk us through the process so um stick with it and we'll get there eventually <laughs> <laughs> cool good answer next up matthew Hi Matthew and Sam, congratulations on the early success of the podcast. It's been fun to hear about the inner workings of gaming journalism when magazines are at the height of their power. Uh, (laughs) I think we were on the descent, but hey, let's let's not argue. Uh, And I found hearing about both of your approaches to interviewing industry legends to be an interesting discussion. Phones going off halfway through included. Uh, I myself have been lucky enough to take part in similar interactions over the years, though by no means on the same scale. My first industry event was in a freelance capacity four years ago when I was invited along to a swanky Bristol hotel to play a preview of old-school adventure game Siberia 3 and interview one of the game's designers, Lucas Lacravette. This thing, whole thing went fine, but at the risk of sounding stalkerish, before my session began, I did notice a rogue Mr. Basil Pesto vacate the premises, and I was just wondering wondering how well he felt it went and more importantly what he's done with the Siberia 3 tie-in comic we were given while at the event was it a worthy read or destined for the bin on a more serious note what do both of you tend to do with the physical PR ephemera you're gifted and what's the worst slash best item you've ever received thanks again for reading my question and nice job with the podcast says Aaron Potter yeah I'm just going to start this one by saying I do not remember Siberia 3 event um and I definitely don't have the tying comic. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's a shame because I, I feel like, um, did you have to run out and get some Rennie? Like, what would be the Matt Castle reason, you know? Uh, I may have just been leaving the event because it was, it was over. Um, Consider- I mean, yeah, I, 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 I imagine this was me. I'm, I was I was racking my brains, but, you know, that I, I look like a lot of people slash things. <laughs> so, you know, there's a chance it could be one of my many doppelgangers. Are you sure it wasn't Gabe Newell? Um, leaving the place because you know it could have been that. <laughs> um, it's funny when people like sometimes I'm tagged or the um, podcast Twitter account is tagged when people say, "Oh, I saw this like a generic like middle aged man with glasses on TV." It's you, Matthew Castle, and um, yeah, and it's like most of the time to me, maybe it's because I know you so well. I don't think you look like these people, but um, you know, it's that's no. not the case to the outsiders, but. Uh, um, <laughs> To answer the question, then um, best and worst uh, item, like I sort of like, you know, there are sort of like rules around this stuff these days in terms of like, you know, the value of things and stuff like that. But one of the most valuable yeah. items I got given was I went to Skywalker Ranch in 2010. A story I will tell when we get to the 
best games of 2010 um, episode. It's not a great story. It's basically me complaining in the sun. But um, I got given <laughs> a replica. That's all your stories. <laughs> <laughs> I got given uh, a replica lightsaber that I think was worth like 100 quid. And this is like, this is not a joke. I genuinely gave it to a sick child um, because I felt very uneasy that I'd been given this like extremely valuable thing. So it was a really like a beautiful, a beautiful like, you know, high end bit of merch. And uh, yeah, I knew someone whose um, whose brother was uh, sick, and I gave it to her to give to her brother who likes Star Wars. Um, he's fine now. Um, so yeah, that makes me sound. That mean like... you can ask for it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, excuse me. Um... Like, that was just a loan until you were healthy. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, hi, me again. You might remember me from eleven years ago. Um, can't <laughs> help but noticing you're still alive. Uh, do you want to just uh, drop that in the post, mate? Um, yeah, so do give it a rub down with some kind of like disinfectant first. <laughs> uh, so that was like a really nice item. Um, I don't know. I, there was like weird stuff. Like uh, there was GTA Four tie-in beer, like the Pisswasser beer in there. Yeah, yeah. That... I, I had a bottle of that which I never drank, and then it just gradually over time changed into an evil colour, and I think <laughs> I just threw it away. <laughs> You see, I thought if I hoarded it, it might be worth something one day, but I thought, you know what, this is probably a chemical weapon at this point, so I should probably put it in the bin. If I sell this on eBay, I'll probably end up in Guantanamo Bay. (laughs) Yeah, so so that was, like, quite a fun one. Mm. But uh, I mostly think these things are, like... Uh, there's, there's some really like weird ones that influencers get where I see them like get sent vinyl players like how is that what's that got anything to do with the game or whatever uh, but anyway um how about you Matthew yeah um yeah I had the piss thing I've got some Nintendo promo shirts from like 2008 that I still wear even though they're so tiny and they're like disintegrating <laughs> I won't ever wear them in public because it's just a state I think you'd there's more skin on the show than there is a t-shirt. Um, but I'd wear them around the house. Um, I think Catherine constantly wants to throw them away or use them as, like, dust rags, but I won't let her because they're precious. I think all the things that were Nintendo of them have worn off as well, so they're just black t-shirts. Uh. Um, the worst thing that ever got sent was uh, the infamous bats from, from um, Saints Row. Oh. Did you get these? Is this the dildo bat? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think... <laughs> which were like... It was like a replica of an in-game weapon, which was just like a giant kind of like purple dildo for hitting people with. And they were hit, and they were like metre long. And they were low... And they were just in the office then for like years after that fact. Yeah. Like, you would shrug them off. You'd be like, oh yeah, there's that. Which like, for anyone coming into the office, must have just been awful to see. <laughs> You'd be like, what the hell? Where is this place? What is this place? Um, yeah, that that was they they were pretty gross. Um, yeah, there was... how do you get rid of that? It's so big, you can't put it in your bin. You <laughs> like, don't... what would the, the the bin man think? Yeah, if you put it on eBay, there's all kinds of questions that could be asked. Like, why do you yeah, why do yeah, you own it's this? Like a truly, cu- I think they're probably still in that building somewhere. Yeah, but just a cursed object. You just can't <laughs> get rid of it. It's like radiation. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like the. Um, Borderlands top trumps in Matthew, where you like uh, accumulate a pile of them and hope to sell them. No, I haven't. I haven't hoarded ten giant dildos <laughs> at home, hoping to plan to sell them on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, I had a couple of um, I had a couple of Rockstar shirts as well that I did like cover for quite a long time. I had like a rainbow coloured one, and then I had like a Red Dead Redemption T shirt, and those I like wore around for a long time. Um, 
And like in, in retrospect, I'm kind of like, oh, I did kind of turn myself into an advert. Is that good as like a, a writer about <laughs> games? Uh, I don't know. I, I think when I was at university, I was doing the student paper. I, I used to go to like some film screenings in London to to do the film reviews, and I used to see like you know famous film journalists or journalists I considered famous because they were like film journalists from whatever the Times or the Guardian, and they'd be wearing their same film. You know, you know, one of them would have like a. You know, drag me to hell cap or something right <laughs> and you'd be like wow you know these are like sophisticated film critics and they're all wearing this junk you know they'd all be wearing like jeans which had you know fast and the furious 2 on them or something so i think everyone does it i think it's just a curse of arts journalists mm, yeah i got um there was something i really wish i remember what the game was we got sent a figure from a game once that um basically the smell of it deteriorated over time um <laughs> And it went from smelling like shoe polish to like something like a dead body or something. And it was like over time, it just got the smell got worse and worse and worse. And people would like come by my desk and smell it and see how bad it had gone. Um, <laughs> that was a really cursed object. I wish I remember what the figure was, but sometimes those, crash. Tr- those, <laughs> those cheaply made figures are sometimes just incredibly nasty. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's. Uh, I think that kind of covers the broad spectrum there. Um, so next up, Matthew. I'd love to hear more on how the free gifts that came with some mags uh, came to be. Endgamer's Wiimote steering wheel thing always stuck in my memory for all the worth £7 gags. That's from Jess Freedy on Twitter. The the Wii Wheel, which was like our attempt to... Nintendo was selling the wheel peripheral for Wii remotes, so we did like a really cheap, nasty version of that and gave it away as a free gift. And because like you could buy a wheel peripheral for £7, I think that's where the worth £7 came from. Right. Um, but it was so tacky. It wasn't the same. It was such a tacky thing. I was actually telling this to someone the other day. I'm pretty sure that came about through mild insubordination, which was I had to write a load of jokes about this wee wheel, and I was really cross at like how naff it was. And the, uh, the, the worth £7 thing really like stuck in my craw. And I remember putting it in, this is how I remember it anyway, as a, um, like... It was it was like me trying to be like sort of withering or sarcastic, fully expecting um, Nick, our editor, to remove it because I was just doing it to be like, you know, this is I don't like this. I'm not into this thing, so I'm going to write this worth seven pounds to like make fun of the line, and it stayed in, and then ended up becoming like a catchphrase of the mag, where it was actually me just trying to be like, you know, bitching about this stupid free gift. <laughs> it's how I remember it. Um, so a completely accidental catchphrase. Um, it was good though because it's, it it set up early on the idea that like we were like it was a big inside joke between us and the readers that our gifts were shit, mm. um, which was lucky because they were shit. Uh, so it was fine. Like it was good. Like it was just part of liking that mag was knowing that the gifts were bad and that we could all have a good joke about it. <laughs> Yeah, like um, there was. Um, I have a good story about one of them. I may, I can't remember if I told this on the podcast before. I, I feel like I haven't. So, um, I got commissioned to write the book that came with one issue of Play, which was like the hundred best PlayStation games, and made this list. And I had to like write it in two weekends. It was twenty thousand words long. Um, oh, yikes! And I did it for like a sum of money that seemed like really good at the time. Um, but while I was writing it, uh, I got trapped in my flat and had to be rescued by the fire brigade. Um, <laughs> so my whenever I saw this book, it was like a little gold book. 
I just couldn't help but have memories of like what basically what happened is um, I used to live in this poxy little flat, like a studio flat, and the door had um, the door's like handle had disintegrated and it wouldn't open, and Fire Brigade had to climb in through my like big windows and then like use a kind of winching device to smash the door open so I could escape. Um, and whenever I th- yeah this book like it was such a cursed process writing this it was so much more work than I thought it was going to be I think originally agreed it'd be 12,000 words ended up being 20,000 just a yeah. fucking nightmare and um yeah had eight fire firefighters in my small flat looking at all of my weird games shit um it it also explains why entry 63 was just help help I'm trapped in my flat help <laughs> help me help me someone please <laughs> Uh, yeah, people are like well, I don't know. That must have been an import game. <laughs> <laughs> and the next one is, uh, if I die, please um, give pass my possessions on to the following charities. Um, and then it was, oh, finally, the sweet, sweet fireman is here. <laughs> <laughs> As a reader, though, like um, I used to really like the books that came with um, Games Master and stuff because if you were like me and you just played GTA Three with cheats on, then um, it was handy to have those books around and just like you know, fi- you'd usually find the information you wanted in them, but. Um, yeah, like, uh, yeah, I, I have written a book, technically. It's just one of, probably one of the worst uh, books ever written in the bottom 1%. Um, but yeah, any other thoughts on free gifts, Matthew? Um, I've got some other free gift stories, but I'll probably tell them when we do the episodes where those gifts came out, because I feel like they're 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 good yearly anecdotes. Mm, yeah, don't want to blow them all here, like my excellent no, firefighter no. anecdote. Um, <laughs> cool, so this next one's from uh, Balladeer on Twitter. Um, I uh, have actually like edited your uh, question to be a bit less, um, I don't know, 90s magazine-y. I hope you don't mind. Salacious. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> Kiss, Marry, Kill. Um, Crash, Spyro, Sly Cooper. This is one for you, Matthew, primarily. Hmm. Uh, e- easy. Uh, marry, Crash, because he's rich. Um, kiss, Sly Cooper, because, uh, like, it's the most sort of, like, I don't know humanoid of all of them i'd say um kill spyro simple i think i'd agree with that with the um it's sort of in terms of the actual like series and of what is like best like one to three it's like it goes for me it goes um sly cooper uh crash spyro so uh yeah but otherwise i think matthew's logic there for which ones you'd actually like marry or get off with um line up so next up matthew uh hit me with the next one Hey both, I'm still working through your back catalogue, so apologies if this is discussed on a previous app. Um, what's each of your favourite and least favourite games to have reviewed? Were there any that really surprised you and how good they were, or any that you found a struggle? So I don't think this is like best worst games, but just the review process, I guess? Mm. Yeah, I've got an answer to this one. So I do remember, I don't know if this is my least favourite game to review, but the um, Harry Potter... Oh, that was Lee Sparks, by the way, sorry. Cool, well... um. I don't know if this is like the worst that I ever reviewed, but um, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, which was kind of like EA's very cheap attempt to do a bully-style version of Harry Potter, where you walked across the school taking on a side quest, was so fucking boring. And I mentioned on a previous episode, it was like primarily a Wii game, and they tried to map the um, Wiimote controls to the analog sticks of the PS2, and that was a mm. fucking miserable experience reviewing that Um I, I hated that game and um yeah just really i think that game actually was probably quite fundamental in in turning me on harry potter like i don't i never really had the same affection for it after that um right. obviously these days um harry potter seems to get like cancelled um once every week at the moment but uh yeah um 
I also thought of Time Shift. That was a game I reviewed for Games TM, a miserable first-person shooter. Um, that was really boring with some uh, slightly disappointing kind of time-based abilities. Um, yeah. How about you with uh, least favourite, Matthew? Yeah, like nightmarish reviews were like import games where you just didn't know what the hell you were doing like trying to review like monster hunter 3 on import on Wii, and like like literally not knowing what the quest conditions were because you were like is it kill it was like it had the number nine and you were like well i have to do nine or something is it nine of these deer is it collect nine mushrooms and that was a nightmare um, that's awful i can't imagine doing that that's so <laughs> yeah. terrible so that was that was bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, reviewing Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 over in San- Activision Santa Monica and fl- flew, in the, the, flew in, got in in the evening the day before we were due to review. I remember going to the motel. They didn't have a room for me. They put me in a room, which was clearly the room of the person who owned the motel because all their clothes were in the cupboard. And that was weird. And then the next day, having to sit in this dark, quite hot room, playing Modern Warfare 3, which I thought was fine, but it was so loud. Like, they had the sound system turned up so loud. The screen was massive. The room was dark. My sofa was a little bit too close to the screen. It was super intense. Probably the most intense setup I've played a game on in this dark little room. And then they fed me. uh, Well, they didn't feed me. They gave me a huge burrito, which I chose to eat. And so I had just the worst meat sweats all afternoon. <laughs> this combination of like jet lag, meat sweats, the proximity of this screen, the volume of this game, like I genuinely thought I was being like brainwashed into being a super soldier, <laughs> you know? It's like some nightmare thing from a sci fi sci fi film. Um that was really that was really stressed a very stressful trip that was the trip i was also reviewing super mario 3d land on on the 3ds so to go from that to that was pretty jarring yeah i won't say what the game is but there was um one one event one review event where i was in a dark room for three days but and it kind of felt like it, it felt a bit like a prison after a while and in that dark room I, and i thought i'm going to die here i'm going to die in this room and uh, <laughs> and what if my family never finds out um but yeah that's uh that, that explains your verdict box on that review which was those words <laughs> i'm gonna die here i'm going to die in this place yeah 85 <laughs> please send firemen <laughs> um so yeah in terms of um the other part of this question actually no favorite favorite games to review i um i would say that mass effect 2 which i mentioned in a previous episode i got to take home for an entire christmas that was really good but oh my word as matthew alluded to though perhaps i was reviewing christmas and not the game um because <laughs> christmas is pretty good uh and for the um games that surprised you uh in the review so I actually did manage to think of a good one for this. So Odin Sphere on PS2. I don't know if people remember this game. It's a vanillaware game that you can actually play on PS4 in an enhanced version. Um, I knew nothing about vanillaware when this came out. And um, yeah, side-scrolling RPG with um, really nice graphics. A bit too sort of like, I don't know, fan service in the character design, which is a kind of a perennial problem with their games. But the um, that's a really great little action RPG. So uh, yeah, that was my pick. What about you, Matthew? Yeah, um... Like, I, I remember having... A, there's loads of games that I've been... You know, I didn't really know much about, and then I ended up really liking them. I think the one that really jumps out is um, Castlevania Lords of Shadow. 
um, which I thought was going to be like a fine God of War clone, is one of my favourite games of that generation. I absolutely adore that game. Mm. And there was so much of it I hadn't seen. It just kept on going. Like every new bit, I was like, oh, wow, this is great. It keeps getting better and better. And, you know, just the, the way that game unfolds, it's like surprisingly long, but surprisingly good for that, for that length as well. Um, that was a super positive. Um, yeah, I love it when a, when a game just surprises you like that, when you didn't really have like any, didn't really think one way or the other, and it ends up being great. That can sometimes push it even higher in your affections, I think. Mm. Um, so yeah, I really rate that game for that reason. Cool. So next up, Matthew, if you could have worked on any games magazine from the past, what would it have been, and why is it N sixty four? That's from Jez on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, that's probably right. N sixty four, the the Tim Weaver era. Um, would have been great. I, I worked for Tim Weaver um, for a little while on something called the Games Hub, which was like where a couple of writers were. We were basically in this like internal freelance pool. Um, so I was still on in Gamer, but I was also in this. And technically, Tim was my boss. And it was for a while, for a couple of months, it was just me, Tim Weaver, and Andy Kelly. And that is the like the two like funniest months of my entire life i think i've never laughed so hard as just just the three of us because no one really knew what to do with us so we were just sort of sitting there like reviewing big games um and rest of the time just just being trying to make each other laugh and both tim and andy kelly are very very funny people i had a really good time and that's what i like to imagine it would have been like on n64 as well Mm. um that's certainly how the mag came across. Um, but I also have huge affection for NGC, like the Jez Bickham era particularly. Uh, Jez, you know, I never worked with Jez, but uh, he's an absolutely awesome dude. And I would have loved to have worked on that mag with him as well. I think um, PC Gamer in the late 90s might have been fun. That was when I started reading it. Um, I kind of always wonder if I might have been intellectually outmatched at some eras of PC Gamer, <laughs> um, which makes me very insecure, of course. Um, but... Uh, do you know, actually, the answer I picked was um, I would love to have been on Edge in the late 90s and early noughties um, mm. because there are some really interesting people who have uh, written for Edge and worked on the magazine over the years, and their access was second to none, and they were covering really big industry stories. They had, like, massive um, sort of columnists and stuff like that. I, th- I think that would have been a really... You'd have learned so much from doing that about the industry. Um, yeah, that would be my pick. Mm. Cool. Next up, then, Matthew. Nice. So... What is a game you love but would never recommend? This is a bit tricky because I think if I love it, it's probably good enough to recommend. Like, Mm. I don't really believe in guilty pleasures. There's a few things which are, like, a little awkward, which I know I I really love and have recommended in reviews, but other people have largely bounced off them. Um, Infinite Space, which I'll probably talk about in more detail when we get to the, the year that comes out episode. There's Suda51 port on DS of Flowers, Sun and Rain. Hmm. Um which is like kind of an anti-fun game. Like it's designed to be as like obscure and wonky as possible. And it's it does the thing which I hate in just about every other game, which it makes fun of how shit it is, which most games can't pull off where they're like, wouldn't it be terrible if you had to kill six rats and then you have to kill six rats? And you're like, <laughs> yeah, this is dog shit. Um, but he gets away with like, there's like a weird boy in it who keeps does this sort of commentary on how much the main character doesn't look like his character portrait when he talks and things like that. And I like, I don't know, it, it got away with it just by being so strange. But it's kind of, it's kind of terrible as a detective game. The story is garbage, but it's it's something that I I've a, a fair amount of affection for. Mm. Yeah. So um, I thought of a couple of examples. So Destiny is a game that I've played a lot of, but I don't know if I'd recommend it necessarily. Like. Um... 
a, right. a lot of friends ask me if I should play it or um, or if it's worth picking up, and I'm like, I I don't really know. I mean, it's the you need to be in a specific mindset to kind of get really deep into it. I think most people would settle for just playing the campaign and moving on with their lives, which is completely fine by me. Um, I also thought of like Kairosoft's games. I got really into Hot Springs Story back when I got my first iPad, and those are like those games are just number tickers in the background. They're like they're like free to play games without free to play mechanics. So in that way, they're good. But I don't know if I I got so deep into game dev story and making my own game development company in that game and like, um, but I don't think it's I don't think it's good. I think it's just compulsive. So yeah, that's another one that I got really into, but um, wouldn't necessarily recommend. Uh, so we have a, a, a boring question, potentially fun answer. They wrote that. That isn't me offering my opinion. <laughs> um, what was the first game you can remember being invested in pre-release? I remember being desperate for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the NES to be good and wanting to collect all the review scores screenshots I could find. That's from Jimmy Mac on Twitter. Mm. Uh, I ooh. think for me... Go ahead. Ooh, I'd say for me, like... It would probably have to be in like the rare coverage in N64 magazine. Like I, I don't think I was reading mags before N64, um, and like they just had the best rare access. So that when they you know blow open like GoldenEye and then later like Perfect Dark, um, I just remember being incredibly incredibly excited for those. I didn't really co- read about games on like the early internet or the internet when I finally had access. So it would have definitely been in a magazine. Um, yeah, probably the N64 era is when that kicked in, I would say. Yeah, I think um, sort of a lot of Star Wars games in the late 90s, like X-Wing Alliance, um, I remember being like really anticipating that. But the one I can think of being like, I need to read every piece of information on this before it comes out, is uh, Vice City, because uh, yeah. I got massively into GTA 3, and Vice City sounded like, sounded like mythically good when you read about you know, we've got all these licensed artists for the radio stations this time. You can fly uh, hel- helicopters and airplanes, which you couldn't in um, GTA 3, which seemed like enormous to me as someone who played that game for like 200 hours or whatever. I was so, so like invested in that to the point where I actually did find Vice City to be slightly disappointing. It's um, it's obviously like progressed the series in a bunch of different ways, but I didn't really, uh, didn't really love the main character or the story, and I didn't, I didn't think the city was that interesting personally. You could um, hit people with hammers, though. That's magic. <laughs> yep, yeah, that's true. Um, I think like uh, San Andreas was a kind of like the obviously like it was the peak of those um, those games on that console. But um, yeah, Vice City, I just got I got so carried away with that one. Just uh, yeah, anticipation mm-hmm. through the roof. Um, I don't really do it these days, though. I think it's just working in the press. You just kind of oh, I'll just play it when it gets here and see how it is, you know. Um, yeah, I like. I am stupidly excited for like whenever there is going to be a new Ace Attorney get. You know, there are certain series I, I am like just really excited that they happen, and I'm still prone to hype. Yeah, that's um, that's probably a bit of a lie actually, because um, the you know Final Fantasy games that still um, still gets me. Mm. But um, I've called on the, some of this stuff a little bit. Like um, a new Kojima game would have been massive to me about 15 years ago but these days um i don't i didn't even pl- i haven't even played death stranding yet and it's uh that's kind of weird for me but i don't know S- mm. slightly cooler next up then matthew do you feel writing for a platform specific mag or multi-platform mag is better is one more enjoyable than the other and is the extra focus of a platform specific mag beneficial in any ways if you had to go back to into mag writing now which platform would you cover kurt lewin oh, well, that in. if i could do it now i'd cover switch easy like a great Nintendo platform, great Nintendo games, 
you could make a brilliant end gamer magazine from the switch i i i i have only ever worked on platform specific stuff um it's all i know uh i kind of prefer it i i like the how comprehensive you can be you know i love the fact that you don't just deal with like the surface level of everything not saying that's what happens in multi platforms but it can happen um i love the fact we cover everything a lot of my favorite games on uh, you know the last 13 years came from like weird stuff i wouldn't have played if it wasn't for being on a nintendo mag um like tapping into that weird tier of stuff uh it's what i'm into um yeah i think it was for me the big benefit of working on a single format mm. it'd be a better ma- a better world if you uh you could work on a nintendo magazine matthew i think that's um yeah, yeah. maybe not for my blood pressure but... <laughs> yeah or for your like subway sandwich consumption um I, I don't know. I've been oh, I've been terrible for it. I've been I had I've been getting them a couple occasionally from Deliveroo, which is awful. <laughs> what subway delivered to your house? Yeah, <laughs> is that terrible? Well, I got McDonald's last night. Um, oh, well, that's I think that's worse. Really? Oh, well, just because yours has got like lettuce on it or whatever. Because there's a lot more ingredients. Like it feels like there's more. Sh- there feels like there's more chefing in a subway than a McDonald's. <laughs> The word chefing is great, by the way, in that context. Um, <laughs> as in, like, you know, an attendant put some things on some uh, fictional yeah. bread. It's not even real bread, is it? It's um, not in Ireland, anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a roller coaster, an answer. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, so for me, like, um, this, I'm going to sort of go a bit sideways here. Uh, first of all, I'll answer the bit about beneficial. Um, like we said, you are kind of a part mascot in some ways for, like, your platform. Or not mascot, but, like... Um, you know proponent you are trying to like make people excited about the platform and so the benefit is that when you pick up the mag and you're reading about that format you know you want to you're feeling like you're a part of a community um around that that thing and um you know certainly piece of gamer did that very well um so i don't really have um a platform i'd like to go back into i'd say like if i was making like a dream sort of magazine my dream magazine would be like millennial retro gamer um Basically, like it would be a, a version of Retro Gamer that had like a PS2 ma- a game on the cover every issue, um, right? And loads of kind of old interviews and features around that stuff because I think that's basically what this podcast is to a large extent. It's like you know, kind of auditing like stuff I played 14 years ago for kind of content, and um, I think that's <laughs> just because I think one of the reasons that this, this podcast has sort of like found quite a nice little audience is um, because people are nostalgic for that era, but it's not as well served as some other parts of like gaming history um like is, there's a lot of like reverence for the sort of um snares era uh 16-bit era like um you can find a lot of content around that stuff and uh, there is content around the stuff that we talk about but less of it and now you know we're at the point where gears of war is 15 years old and people are nostalgic about that kind of stuff so yeah if i was making a magazine now it would um it would it would cover that sort of rough era of games from like the mid 90s to like the uh, I don't know, to, to the noughties, basically. Um, mm. Yeah. All right, then, Matthew, next up. Um, this is one of yours, right? Uh, what's the most annoyed you've ever been at a freelancer? That is from Sam White, yeah. a freelancer. Yeah. Uh, so I um, I wouldn't drop anyone in it here. Um, I'd be too <laughs> afraid of legal action, for one. Um, I mean, we had there's there's one piece, which I won't say what the piece is or who wrote it, where there was like a retrospective in an in an issue of Endgamer and it was so bad that like quotes from it became legendary on the team mm. for like quoting this bad pre this bad retrospective at each other um 
And I remember looking at it on the page during, like, it must have had about, like, ten editorial passes eventually to try and, like, get it working on the page because it was so dry and so boring. And every time we get back to this, you'd be finding something, like, new, like a new horror. It was like if in a lab, like scientists in a laboratory had created like the worst bit of copy ever right um it just kept like revealing fresh horrors on every <laughs> read um i can't quote it because it'll be obvious what it is but um if ever one day you meet me and we become good friends and we're one day in the pub um i, I may quote some of these quotes at you uh <laughs> sounds like another stretch goal to me matthew <laughs> yeah the indiscreet layer of Patreon. <laughs> yeah, the light. <laughs> For this layer. much, Matt, you can meet Matt. You can meet me, and I'll be incredibly indiscreet <laughs> about my working relationships over the last fourteen years. <laughs> um, generally, most people are on, but like to be honest, we wouldn't. We we didn't ever really use anyone we weren't like trusting of. Um, so you know, we were lucky, really. You know, I've, I've always been quite big on finding like a kind of two or three absolutely vital freelancers for a particular mag and then just sticking with them, um, which I know isn't great for the wider field, but, you know, it got the job done. Yeah, so, um, yeah, like, um, to make that clear as well, like, the um, vast majority of uh, freelancers, it's like a it's like a good experience. I've, um, yeah, can't really recall many traumatic ones. Maybe that's not a juicy enough answer, but again, if we're in the pub, I would tell a completely different story. So um, this is just a sanitised um, public podcast version. Um <laughs> Next up, then, Matthew. I think Sam just asked this question because he wanted us to to say, "No, not Sam." But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give him the pleasure of doing that. So, <laughs> uh, my memories of Sam's writing is that it was like it was it was good. I remember I think a dishonored review for Play Magazine that was like that was good. Um, thanks for tweeting about the podcast, Sam. There you go. Maybe I'm just kissing your ass because you tweeted about the podcast, and uh, we appreciate <laughs> any marketing we can get. Um, cool. So, next up, greetings from Vancouver. Now we're older and owning all the console formats is actually a more realistic proposition. Is it too much to own them all now or is it actually maybe essential? I realise you both have them all for your job, but do you think you would if you didn't have to? I'm lucky enough that I have a PS5 and a Switch, but I'm now hovering over the buy button on a Series S and it can't help but feel a bit excessive. But then they all seem to be offering something different this time around. Maybe I'll hold off until I know what you think. So there's a second question here, but should we answer this one first, Matthew? Yeah, um... I always find this really tricky because I feel like as a grown-up, I spend stupid, you know, I spend money on getting all these things, mm. and that's like something I've looked forward to doing my whole life is 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 having a job where I've been able to do that, and I've been lucky that I am able to do that. So, um, like these days, uh, I say you don't necessarily need an Xbox because literally everything on Xbox is also on PC, mm. um, but then a PC is a lot more expensive. PC's, PC's I, I, fucking expensive. Yeah. It's a tricky one, Rick. I, I'm lucky to have all of them. Um, uh, I don't know. I really like Game Pass. I like, like, If anything, if I only had a Switch, I'd probably get an Xbox before I got a PlayStation just because of Game Pass. Hmm. Um, like PlayStation will have an exclusive you want one day, but they haven't got it yet and they won't have it for a while, I don't think. So that's my take. Yeah, I think that um, as someone who's you know been lucky enough to afford a, a decent PC, I bought um, I bought one like three years ago before like graphics cards shortages became like so so fucking bad due to 
that all the crypto mining bullshit that's going on that's like a fucking horror <laughs> of the modern age um that's something i don't mind slagging off because you know i have no stake in it and uh it's fucking terrible to read about um but i think that um i think personally like i do i think if i wasn't in this job i would still own all the stuff because i think that even when i was um you know like a teenager i had like envy when i'd see like the psp had a cool game or the you know the um the we had something i wanted to play or whatever and like i think that it was again it was just brought out the fact that my parents wouldn't buy me a games console for a long time that as an adult i can give myself this stuff and generally speaking games consoles they're not that expensive a pc definitely is but like um i think the ps5 is actually pretty reasonably priced for how powerful it is um i would i would go like my combination would be like ps5 switch pc like um xbox i think i actually differ with matthew on this i think game pass is good but i think that pc game pass has most of like the big games especially now and even even though you miss out on some of the cooler Xbox 360 stuff, which means quite a lot to me, I think that the PC will kind of see you through. Plus, obviously, you have like Steam and access to every mm. indie game that launches. So uh, that's my combination there. But um, part two of this question, Matthew, you've both mentioned Game Pass a fair bit in the past, and I'd love to know how you feel the impact of it will be on the gaming industry in the coming years. Is it the future for all the platform holders, or is it only sustainable if you're Microsoft and can just throw money at it until it works? Uh... I always find these tri- these these questions tricky because like the, the 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 service as it is now is during the courting phase, mm. you know, and what happens now and what happens when it's if it's like the biggest thing on the planet is very different. Um, you know, it's the same with the streaming services. We're still in that kind of honeymoon period for film streaming where you know it's incredible value, but eventually it won't be, or eventually you know it will be enough of a monopoly that it can be expensive, or they have to pay up, you know. They have to finally pay for all all the money they've spent mm. building the services up. Um, so I find it quite hard. I mean, like anecdotally, developers who are involved in Game Pass now sing its praises. Like I think it's done really, really well for lots of people, and there are plenty of articles you can read about that. I mean, I must admit, I don't really follow the business of you know the finances of games that closely these days because I find it quite tedious. <laughs> um, so. Uh, hard to track, but I don't know. On a, on a, on a purely selfish, um, short-sighted level, uh, it's good value for money now, and so I like it. <laughs> yeah, like if um if if there's a future where Game Pass is twenty pounds a month, then at that point, I think I probably wouldn't pay for it. But I think that it's like I, I feel the same way about the streaming services here. I don't mind companies with loads of money, like not bankrupting themselves but spent like you know getting deep into their pockets to make cool shit and to give people cool shit because obviously in microsoft's case like them buying bethesda doesn't seem like it's going to be like a net loss for me as a consumer at all but i get to play all their games on there and that's that is good like over the over time the um game pass library will just grow from microsoft's like suite of um in-house studios and uh and owning bethesda so you'll actually like see a massive range of stuff that's just always on there so um mm. microsoft might be a bit less conti- uh, you know a bit less dependent on some of the um, newer games coming in but i don't know what their long-term plan is it's hard to tell but um yeah i think it's sustainable for microsoft just because they've got the deepest pockets of anyone and they can just keep going with this and um mm. and really show their teeth but uh in terms of how it affects other people i don't know i think that like Sony has rightly identified that people like its hardware and like its games and 
even though the prices on those new games are like really expensive, I think people will pay them. But that's the problem. I think Sony's stance comes from like a more hubristic place. Mm. It's like, well, we know that you're going to want to buy our, you know, you're going to want our exclusives so we can sell you our exclusives. It's not from a consumer friendly point of view at all. No. Like it's purely like, we've got something you want, so you're going to have to pay full whack for it. 70 quid as well. Like, I mean, come on. Yeah. Imagine a world where they charge 70 quid for like days gone. <laughs> that is what um, we're talking about basically as well, isn't it? Like that's the, that is the world that Sony is moving towards. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. That 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 works up until a point. Like Sony do have better exclusives than Xbox. But if Xbox get their exclusives game together, which they could well do, then then I think Sony will probably end up just doing this. So yeah, yeah, we'll see how it goes. But certainly, um, I think it'll be disruptive. But the I don't know. I don't think it will like transform the industry for quite a long time yet. I think this generation will largely look as it as it does now in um, five years time. But um, mm. Yes, so uh, thank you very much for the question. That was uh, from Tim Trimming. So next up, Matthew, do you want to fire away? I recently enjoyed the excellent locomotive on Itch as well as Hitman 3's Dartmoor mission, but do you feel there is a relative lack of detective games out there? And if so, why might that be? Asks John Cheatham. Yeah, this is um, definitely a Matthew Castle question because um, if anyone follows the... uh, sort of like course of the detective game subgenre is you right yeah although i had missed this locomotive and i've downloaded it and i'm gonna play it today because it looks right up my street mm, okay um, i'm gonna do that too that sounds good yeah it's, it's weird talking about a relative lack of detective games because detective games like that there are enough of them that it is sort of a genre is kind of mad when you look at other genres like there are probably as many detective games coming out every year as there are like big first person shooters so i mean from my perspective i'd obviously love to have you know more detective games than i know what to do with but i also think we get quite a few for what is quite a niche genre um like uh, if it was reasonably well fed i think if there is a reason why people aren't making them or don't make them is that they're very much like a one-shot deal or at least in the current form they are um you know mysteries by their very nature are redundant once you've solved them um, you can either leave it for long enough and hope you've forgotten it, but that never really works, mm. I don't think. Um, you know, mystery fiction moves at a much faster rate than other genres. You know, these authors write one a year. You know, it's a bit of a... You kind of consume them and move on to the next thing. It's not a particularly friendly genre in that way, and I imagine that's even worse for game developers because the time it takes is going to be longer than the time it takes for one person to write one book which maybe puts people off. But I think we get enough of, of, of detective games. And I think enough people are a fan of detective games that, you know, we'll keep get we'll, you know, and, and the good detective games we've had recently that people will keep making them. Um, maybe there's a discoverability issue. Like there are some good detective games like buried on Steam that are quite hard to find. Um, there are some good detective games like on itch, like this locomotive uh, by all accounts. So yeah, you just have to sniff them out much like a detective okay so we're on the last questions of the podcast matthew oh we did it it was it was longer than i thought it would be but it's still uh it's good um, <laughs> at the start of this we were like 90 minutes or burst <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's like god two hours as it always does so um this is from alex a few pods ago you mentioned being obliged to loud lord the visuals of a new pokemon game as being a huge step forward when they were not that why did you feel like you had to? I had thought 
um, slash hoped not to be, but not being the official Nintendo magazine would give you the freedom to write stuff that more honestly reflected your opinion. Okay, I think it's a slight mis- misinterpretation here. The very specific Pokemon example here was the, um, I thought Pokemon Black and White looked terrible. Um, but at the time, the mag was like, oh, this is okay. But I will say I didn't write that. <laughs> like, what, what, I think the point I was trying to make was that when I saw people, other writers who did like it, or were like, oh, this is quite a step up. And I was like, I thought, well, it's a tiny baby step from a series that really holds its fans in contempt, uh, with contempt. So, yeah, that's that's more the point. I'm not saying, like, we, you know, we swallowed our true opinions, but my true opinion isn't necessarily reflected in the magazine, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's definitely not a thing of, like, you can't write about that sort of thing because you're the official whatever. Like, that's definitely not the um, definitely not the point. Yeah, I <laughs> It's an interesting thing, and it's probably a bigger topic for another time, but, like, there are different, you know, big disagreements between staff members on magazines, and fundamentally, it's not your role to undermine other writers. You know, you have to have a level of respect. If someone else chooses that they do like something and they think it's a big step up, I'm not going to use my words elsewhere in the mag to undermine that. You'd be an asshole if you did that. Yeah. Like, I just, I wouldn't allow it as an editor. I wouldn't expect any other editor to allow that either. I mean, y- you kind of... Yeah, it's a question of respect, I think, more than anything. Yeah, I think like some of those clashes will naturally occur, but um, in kind of a healthy way. But uh, yeah, it's definitely like a discussion for, for that we can pick up again in the future. So the other part of this question, Matthew, is uh, kind of covered by our last episode, but I've just gone back to my 3DS after a few years with the Switch and started rebuilding my games collection. The 3DS is a really good piece of kit, isn't it? In your highly educated opinions, what made it such a shit-hot console? Anything need to say on this, Matthew, that wasn't covered last week? No, I'd really say listen, listen to listen to our last podcast. Um, yeah, and um, like go on to the Metacritic, get the ranking of games by score, and just keep scrolling down until until you're out of like the eighties. Get into the seventies, the high sixties. There's still some really interesting stuff there. Just dig out some interesting games from there. Mm. Um, doesn't really answer the question, but I was just—I don't know. I've been looking at the 3DS games and being like, "Oh yeah, that was good as well." Oh, I quite like that. Yeah, I'm hoarding a few of the uh, download-only ones before the um, that eShop inevitably gets closed by Nintendo. Yeah. Uh, so yes, those were all the questions, Matthew. We've reached the end. Um, we did it. Congratulations! It only took an hour longer than we thought it would. Um, oh, we would. But we're very grateful for all the questions you sent in um, from. Uh, for the next, uh, for the foreseeable future, we'll um, go back to rolling them into uh, the episodes themselves. So if you want to send us questions, you can tweet us at BackpagePod on Twitter. You can also email us questions at BackpageGames at gmail.com. Uh, we welcome your correspondence. Um, if you enjoy the podcast, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review on the uh, Apple Podcast service. We've had lots of like positive feedback on there in uh, the US and the UK um, Apple uh, podcast sort of, uh, storefronts. So uh, we really appreciate that. But um, Matthew, where can people find you on Twitter? I am at at Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. Yep. If you were, if that wasn't clear from our discussions earlier about the origins <laughs> of Matthew's name, um, I'm Samuel W. Roberts on Twitter. Our next episode is going to be a sequel episode to Games Magazine covers from Hell. This will be Games Magazine covers from Heaven. We're going to pick a bunch more covers that we worked on and tell a bunch of stories about how those covers came to be that we um, we hope people will enjoy. So thank you very much for listening and we'll be back next week. Goodbye.